Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now let's launch into the latest chapter in our fourth golden age of rock series. We're talking about peak Britpop, the continuing saga of grunge, and a whole lot of enduring one-hit wonders. Let us now revisit 1995. Here is our Turo Andrade to set us up. In the last episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, we explored the line of demarcation year of 1994, which saw the death of an icon, the end of the commercial peak of one subgenre, and the rise of several subgenres, Britpop, trip-hop, pop-punk, and new metal that would be prominent for the rest of the decade. The year 1995, as we will discuss in this episode, proves that the fourth golden age of rock possessed an embarrassment of riches with all-time great and enduring classic albums by a plethora of bands and artists that span both sides of the Atlantic as well as different subgenres. In one of the most singularly great years in the history of British rock and roll, the two biggest bands of their era engage in a bitter, hostile, yet highly entertaining feud in the UK music media and the national tabloids, leading up to the release of their highly anticipated albums, one of which will go down as a genuine pop cultural phenomenon and one of the greatest records ever made. Britpop proved to be about more than just those two bands, however, as 95 saw former indie synth-pop has-been band from the 1980s reinvent themselves and galvanize an era with one of the greatest pop singles ever recorded. Another band, an art school quintet from Oxford that was written off just two years earlier as a one-hit wonder, would shock the music world with an album of transcendent power and beauty that not only established them as one of the great bands of the decade, but would influence generations of artists to come. Back in the U.S., one of the two greatest and era-defining American bands of the decade wage war with the country's largest corporate ticketing agent over unfair pricing practices. It's one of the bravest, most righteous stances ever by an artist against a corporate entity that, sadly, sees not a single band stand with them. The other great era-defining American band of the decade saw its demise when its front man and leader committed suicide the previous year. Nevertheless, 1995 sees that band's drummer step out of the long shadow cast by the group's legendary singer-guitarist to produce a brilliant, exhilarating debut album that would launch one of the unlikeliest success stories in rock history. In one of the most startling reinventions in pop music history, a Canadian teen pop starlet from the 1980s embraces the visual aesthetic, the lyrical angst, and the sonic language of alternative rock and releases a blockbuster record that would become one of the biggest selling albums of all time, as well as underscore how women in rock made never before seen commercial strides in the 1990s. 
So whether it's watching old reruns of the TV show Friends, wiping the dust off that old VHS copy of Pulp Fiction, or reimagining the neighbors in your apartment building as the cast of Melrose Place, get in your 1995 mood as the fourth golden age of rock will take you on another trip of rock and roll goodness. Well, Arturo, 1995 was so packed full of rock and roll goodness, we don't even have room for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Moby, Live, or Hootie and the Blowfish. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I mean, it, it really was kind of a, a fascinating year, which we'll get into. It's just it's a remarkably deep bench uh, that we'll be uh, that we'll be discussing uh, in this episode. But before then, uh, Arturo, uh, I, I, be- I, be- I believe you have an apology to make to Weezer and all their fans. Uh, yes, I guess it was pointed out to Arturo by one of our, you know, like four or five loyal uh, longtime listeners who have been with us since the beginning that uh, in my retort to his uh, review of uh, Weezer's Blue Album, uh, I kind of went on a, I did an improvisational riff about uh, Weezer being a Boston ba- uh, band uh, fronted by a guy who was at Harvard at the time. Well, well. Turns out that those guys are from various parts of the country and formed in Los Angeles. And then uh, Cuomo started attending Harvard after this record was released. So, yep, egg on my face. But hey, in my defense, you know, Harvard guy, Rick Ocasek does the producer. Hey, that sounds like Boston to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so then uh, now that we've uh, got that apology out of the way, uh, let us get ready to uh, head back to 1995. But first, uh, we have to uh, fill that rip in the space-time continuum, as we always do. Uh, welcome again, everyone, to the parallel universe. Uh, this is the environment in which Arturo and I uh, basically visit the Upside Down, for all of you Stranger Things fans, and where uh, blue is green and uh, uh, true is false, and uh, the folks that are making the best music and are uh, the most meaningful of uh, rock and rollers and rappers, etc., are filling up the stadiums and getting the coverage on Rolling Stone and are uh, allowing Ticketmaster to drum up those, those exorbitant fees. Uh, that's, an e- <laughs> yeah. that's an Easter egg for later on in the episode. Yep. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, the, the point here is that we each in, uh, of us review a uh, either brand new or relatively recent album by an artist we love and recommend. And so with that said, Arturo, who are you, who are you doing this week? All right. If I were to describe a band using the words politically charged anarchist rap metal, you would probably say, oh, like Rage Against the Machine, right? Well, that reaction would be appropriate because after 30 years, it seems that Merry Old England has finally produced their answer to Rage Against the Machine with the brilliantly named band Bob Villain. (laughs) V instead of a D. Uh, In the studio, they are a duo comprised of Bobby Villain, B-O-B-B-Y on vocals, guitars, and production, and Bobby Villain, B-O-B-B-I-E, on drums. Uh, As a live act, they attracted music industry attention with their performances at the 2018 Afro-Punk London Battle of the Bands. Uh, 
Since then, they've released a slew of singles on their very own record label, Ghost Theater, all leading up to this year's album, their second and potential breakthrough, Bob Villain Presents the Price of Life. Now, calling them straight-up rap metal would be a mistake, though. Spiritually, they very much have a DIY, uh, do-it-yourself punk ethos, and their rhythms are heavily informed by grime. And for those of you who don't know, grime is that British, very British genre of electronic music uh, characterized by fast, syncopated beats. Um, Lyrically, if there's something to rebel against and be angry at, Bob Villain will find it. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, these, these yeah, guys yeah. hate everything. <laughs> um, yeah. Institutional and cultural racism, the evils of corporate farming and fast food culture, mass and social media saturation, and societal obsession with escapist entertainment all get verbal tongue lashings on this record. And let's face it, for good reason. Any any honest left-leaning fan of kick-ass rock and roll can get behind these songs and air guitar along, no matter what you think of rap metal or even new metal. The song Take That, one of two straightforward hip-hop tracks on the album, quotes Public Enemy in the lyrics with its uh, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me, Creed. And it grooves along on a state-of-the-nation address, postulating how capitalist greed and social apathy is destroying England. England isn't the only country being destroyed by that, I tell you. Uh, um, yeah. The other, the other hip hop track, the reggae sampling "Health Is Wealth," is probably the best hardcore hip hop song ever made about eating healthy. <laughs> yeah. However, it's after the thirty-five second interlude censored, where Bobby Villain raps in acapella about the censoring nature of the music industry, that the album really soars on the strength of full on rock muscle. Um, whereas Rage Against the Machine, Zach De La Rocha urged us to turn that shit up on the track Gorilla Radio. Bob Villain tells us to turn off that bullshit <laughs> on, mm-hmm. on the metal and grime grind of Turn Off the Radio, the name of the song, attacking society's obsession with shallow, lightweight entertainment. Uh, GDP is one of the most arresting and powerful riffs on the whole record with its tirade on how news media has fostered and brainwashed generations of conservatives with its focus on corporate profit and rich people's money. Quote, you know, the BBC are talking about the GDP. That means fuck all to me. Indeed. (laughs) Bait the Bear uh, bludgeons with its sludge riff and the negative legacy of colonialism and British imperialism. Grime joins forces with thrash metal on the track Drug War with its diatribe on the evils of the pharmaceutical industry and the pulverizing new metal stomp of what you're gonna do basically all but calls for social revolution. Uncompromising in its politics and unrelenting in its energy Bob Villain Presents the Price of Life is also one of the most fun-as-fuck rock albums of this year. Yeah, I I really like this record, too. Uh, You know, it's amazing to me, now that I think about it, that no one else thought of the MC handle Bob Villain until now. (laughs) I mean, it's just so simple, and it's right there, and it's just so genius that I mean, come on. I love it. Uh, and you, you must have been reading my notes because I have here written uh, Black British Rage Against the UK Machine. Yeah. Uh, 
which is pretty much just amounts to, you know, you, you've cited uh, some of the main influences. I think there's a few others, uh, at least spiritually, it goes back to uh, The Clash. And, yeah. Uh, you know, other uh, politically charged uh, punk bands of that era in Britain. Uh, Detroit House Music, I think, mm-hmm. is, is there. And then here is a reference that um, is not readily apparent. And I guess you have to be a, a real hip hop head or at least a, a hip hop head who was living in New York in 2000 and is now in his mid 40s. Do you remember Dead Prez? Yes. Hip hop. Hip, talking about hip hop. Dave Chappelle used that song uh, in his TV. Oh, show. I know. Oh, I know. But uh, but yeah, that that song is amazing. But that band, uh, they did their album in two thousand called "Let's Get Free." Yeah, uh, it is a near masterpiece of of uh, just radical political uh, nationalist uh, hip hop. You know, like songs like "I'm an African" is mm-hmm. uh, are on there and. That album actually does have its own uh, pay on to the vegan lifestyle. Uh, and mm. so uh, it's pretty obvious to me that uh, Dead Prez is, a, um, is an inspiration uh, to these guys because basically they're taking, yeah, you said there's the Rage Against the Machine and Grime stuff, but they're basically doing Dead Prez's act. Uh, yeah. updated for 2022 and transported yeah. across the ocean. And the next one, this, this is a slightly different take, the Parallel Vault, isn't it, yes. Chris? Yes. Uh, w- here in the Parallel Universe, we do have a Parallel Vault, and I am uh, reaching into it uh, to pull out uh, this week's uh, or this episode's title. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Lucy Dacus's debut album, No Burden, uh, from 2016. Um, so to set this up, uh, now would we say that Richmond, Virginia's Lucy Dacus is a rock star who can do pop or is she a pop star who can do rock? The answer? Yes. When you're this gifted as a songwriter and lyricist, you can pretty much do whatever you want and go to places that not a whole lot of other people have the talent or the capacity to go. Now, uh, folks will remember uh, from last year uh, that I love and am really enthusiastic about uh, her album from 2021, uh, Home Video. It was the best album I heard all of last year. Actually, it's one of the best albums I've heard over the past decade. Uh, Its songs are just a remarkable uh, exploration on how nostalgia, teenage memories, and all the regret, longing, and occasional celebration that comes with it uh, shape us or mess us up as adults. Now, I admit that I had only heard of Dacus, but had not yet listened to her past work before falling in love with home video. So now, since the Parallel Universe does have this parallel vault filled with titles released within the past decade, you know, 2012 and on, I rummaged through there and I pulled out this album, uh, again, 2016's No Burden, which was released on Matador Records, the one-time label home of everyone's beloved pavement. Turns out that this album is not as great as home video. Uh, oh, I it, think it's I think it's better. Way okay. better. But it's still pretty freaking great. And it does possess some absolute just gems. Uh, like a lot of talented artists who later reach the bigs and have major studio sheen at their disposal, which in Dax's case really, really helped uh, shape and deliver uh, the power of home video. But anyway, when you, 
when you have it before that, you know, just like you would expect, you know, this album's much more DIY. Uh, it plums rougher depths over here and more intimate depths over there, kind of, you know, bedroom folky kind of stuff. Uh, she and uh, her backing band uh, bust out uh, some surprisingly strong guitar chops uh, at, at times on this album's on songs like the seamless, marvelous album opener, I Don't Want to Be Funny Anymore. Uh, the song is a simple but powerful ditty about vulnerability and awkwardness that shows Dacus's gifts for turning a phrase with an efficient poignancy and crafting a verse you can't quite believe flows as well as it does. I will say, I actually think I Don't Want to Be Funny Anymore is the best song she's written. Uh, that song is just about perfect. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, Dacus offers me another surprise here, uh, an, evoc- an evocation or an evocation of moody and mythical folk rockers like Nick Drake. Her solo acoustic performances of the song Trust, uh, is, is that song is just gorgeous, and it's just mumbly enough to force me to listen intently. When she sings of setting fire to her soul in that deep, mysterious register of hers, you, you actually truly do believe her. Uh, Dacus recorded No Burden uh, with a makeshift band quickly and cheaply in a Nashville studio uh, back there, 2016, 2015, when she was 21. And uh, it was enough uh, to launch her career in earnest. And the parallel universe is much, much better for it. Uh, one remarkable talent, uh, one with uh, great albums and uh, at least one near masterpiece out there already, by the age of 27, which, you know, she's 27 now. Assuming she makes it through this famously perilous rock and roll age, I have to think her future and our future are very, very, very bright. Uh, now, Arturo, I know, I know you like this record a lot more than home video. Explain that for folks. Yeah, uh, it's, just, it's a better production. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a fan of glossy, shiny, indie pop sounds. What saves home videos is the quality of the songs. She's a great songwriter, so so it, it, she, they succeed despite the crappy indie hipster production. Whereas No Burden has a raw, like almost, almost kind of a live in the studio sound that I think actually is better yeah. for her is better for her songs and her lyrics, in my opinion. Yeah, well, um, it, it it definitely was uh, live in the studio. I mean, they they went in there, and I think it was like one or two days. Uh, they they had a chance to sneak in uh, some studio time on a friend's dime. Uh, and, uh, so it was kind of hit and run and, yeah. but it produced a pretty marvelous result, which by the way, is about nine songs in 36 minutes. Yeah. It's a really short record. Yeah. That, that's a theme, uh, for us on the Convergent Rock Report these days. Yeah. Uh, shorter is more preferable because, uh, longer albums just, you know, they're just like too loose and too permeable for me these days in my old age. But well, it, anyway. it, depends on the, it depends on the artist. Some bands can pull it off. Some can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most can't. But, uh, but anyway, so, uh, but this album, I mean, I mean, for, for you, I mean, do you agree with me about, I don't want to be funny anymore? Uh, I, I think, I think that song is just tremendous. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the, the whole, like the first six tracks on this album were all just fantastic. You know, it's the reason why this is the album that got her mentioned on NPR. This is the album that, that, uh, that got her, um, some views on YouTube, you know? So th- yeah. this is the one, this is the one that really broke her. Oh yeah, I mean, um, yeah, so. and, and it what leads to home video, and and again, I think that you know uh, that actually got genuine excitement, which it deserved. I mean, there's just lyrical uh, content and just lyrical flow and just a, a real uh, sense of poetics 
mm-hmm. on that record. And even like, I mean, like you talk about the studio sheen, it actually helps. Uh, the most famous song on that album is VBS. It really yeah. helps uh, drive a song like that home or then like uh, the, the opening track, Hot and Heavy. And, uh, and, and not ironically, VBS is the heaviest guitar sound on the record. Gee, go figure. So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy, bendy, yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens back in 2000 and commits it to quote-unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston and Arturo lives in South Korea. So we are a worldwide affair, which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. And we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music... Wheel of its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to lost and forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming. The fourth golden age of rock continues, and we are in 1995, a year that, at least stateside, is an overlooked year. But... 1995 is a special year in the fourth golden age of rock because it is such a phenomenal year, like I mentioned earlier in, uh, in this episode's parameter setter, um, for British rock. You know, all the great British rock albums that came out this year. It's pretty staggering um, uh, if you go about it. Um, but Chris, are you yes. ready to hear a story about two bands that genuinely fucking hated each other? Oh, I can't! I can't wait. You know, grab the popcorn, uh, folks. Uh, I, I know I'm buttering mine. So, Arturo, uh, do tell the uh, the battle of the Gallagher's and uh, Mr. Alburn, Messrs. Alburn and Coxon. Yeah. Any story about rock and roll in 1995? By the way, I named this segment "These Charming Men." Uh, kind of a <laughs> a twist on the on the Smith song, "This Charming Man." So yeah. I thought I thought that was kind of funny. And Blur have a song on their 1995 album, The Great Escape, called Charmless Man. So, hey, they kind of fit. Hey, go go figure. Anyway, any story about rock and roll in 1995 has to begin in the summer of 95, and the legendary, or infamous, depending on your perspective, Battle of Britpop, where the bands Oasis and Blur waged war on the British pop charts and, more entertainingly, verbal war with each other. Uh, At the time, people compared their rivalry to that of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones back in the 1960s. However, the Beatles and the Stones had more of a healthy rivalry based on mutual respect and one-upmanship. 
those guys were actually friends with each other. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Oasis and Blur, on the other hand, really hated each other viscerally and on a personal level. Um, it added spice and vinegar to a feud that played itself out in both the music press, the NME and the Melody Maker, sold tons of copies, <laughs> countless articles about these two bands. Um, it played itself out in the music press and in the mainstream UK media, both in print and on TV. No joke. It wasn't always hostile between these two bands, though. As we discussed in our previous episode, the 19, 1994 was an epical year for Britpop as Oasis released their classic debut album, Definitely Maybe, and Blur put out their masterpiece, Park Life. Both albums were era and decade-defining albums, and to this day, stand as two of the greatest albums ever made. Uh, in early 95, during the NME Awards, where Blur won five awards to Oasis's three, both bands were complementary toward each other. At the Brit Awards, during the same time where both bands won numerous awards and Blur won for Best Album, Blur frontman Damon Alburn even said on the podium that the award should be shared with Oasis. So, what happened? Well, according to Alburn himself and several UK music journalists who were part of the Britpop scene at the time and have corroborated the story, he went to an Oasis celebration party in the spring of 95 after the, uh, the, the single, the band single, Some Might Say, hit number one in the UK pop chart. It was an, on, on Auburn's part, it was an honest attempt to congratulate uh, Blur's friendly rivals with a nice old well done, right? Well, Oasis frontman Liam Gallagher, notorious for being mouthy, arrogant, and quite possibly drunk at the time, supposedly rubbed it in Auburn's face. <laughs> According to Auburn, quote, Liam came over and like he is, he goes, number fucking one, not you. Right, <laughs> right, right in my face. So I thought, okay, we'll see. <laughs> um, it only escalated from there. The feud not only played itself out in music media outlets like the Enemy and the Melody Maker, Melody Maker, but also in the traditional mainstream news press, BBC Radio and BBC Television. Auburn would be quoted as calling Oasis Oasis Quo, <laughs> comparing, <laughs> comparing the Gallagher brothers to the boring ass cock rock British band from the 1970s, Status Quo who wrote the same boogie-woogie tune over and over again. Liam responded by calling Blur, quote, Chaz and Dave chimney sweep music. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is even, actually pretty right on, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Even older brother and guitarist songwriter Noel got in on the act, proclaiming to the popular newspaper The Guardian and referring to Auburn and Blur guitarist Graham Coxon, quote, I hope the pair of them catch AIDS and die because I fucking hate them too. <laughs> Yikes. Dude, dude, this, this, this went way beyond John Lennon critiquing Mick Jagger's dance moves. Wow, you don't say. <laughs> wow. Anyway, before we move this little story to what actually was the showdown of August 95, you listeners might be wondering about who was actually responsible for making this a nationwide story 
that even made news in continental Europe and even a bit in the U.S. via Rolling Stone magazine. Was it the band members themselves? Was it the band's respective record labels? Oasis on creation with Sony's major label distribution, likewise with Blur on food records with EMI's distribution? Or was it the media, both music-centric and mainstream news? How about all parties involved? (laughs) Uh, It cannot be overstated how important class conflict was in this feud. Um, Here you had Blur, upper middle class kids from London in the affluent South who all went to art school. And here you had Oasis, working class kids from suburban Manchester in the no-nonsense North who never had much or any schooling beyond the British version of high school. It took Blur almost five years to reach the top of the British rock pyramid, whereas Oasis got there in just a year and they were already becoming more popular. For as competitive and ambitious as Damon Alburn was during this time, it must have bothered him despite his never actually publicly discussing this aspect of the feud at the time or since. In fact, this class dynamic is so inherent in British society that it was just taken for a given that it was the backbone of the feud. As I'll make note of soon, it was the Blur camp that pushed the rivalry to the level of a one-on-one battle. Uh, For the music industry, nothing sells records like controversy, as this certainly was. And for the media, at least in the UK, Nothing sells newspapers or gets people to listen to news radio or watch TV news more than good old class conflict. All the ingredients were in place for a perfect storm that came to its apex in August of 1995. Now, here's what happened. Oasis had scheduled August 14th to be the release date of their new single, a jaunty little rock and roll ditty called Roll With It. Blur's new single, Country House, a revved-up 90s take on the rock and music hall hybrid pioneered by the Kinks, um, was originally slated for release one week later. There was concern both within the Blur and Blur's re- Blur camp and Blur's record label, Food, that releasing Country House one week after Roll With It would only put the former song in the shadow Sorry, it put the latter song in the shadow of the former since Roll With It was the follow-up single to a smash hit number one, some might say, and was eagerly anticipated, hence relegating Country House to number two status. This only justified the decision to add fuel to the rivalry's already burning fire, and Blur moved the Country House release up a week to come out on the exact same day as Roll With It. Uh, media hype and mayhem ensued, the kind of which had never been seen in the UK music industry before. Um, even the Beatles and Stones carefully scheduled their single releases to avoid overtly competing with each other. Hmm. Um, it must have been surreal for regular folks who tuned into the BBC evening news shows on television, expecting solid professional reporting of the day's news events to all of a sudden see serious-minded reporting about the ugly rivalry between two rock and roll bands and the anticipation over which one of their singles, their new singles, would hit number one on the pop singles chart. Alas, that's where Britpop was in the summer of 1995. For a generation of British music fans, uh, it was a decade-defining moment. In the end, Country House won the battle as it gave Blur their first number one hit single, selling a whopping 270,000 copies 
as opposed to 220,000 copies for Roll With It. Trust me, those are pretty staggering numbers for their time, especially especially for a country the size of Great Britain. While Blur won the Battle of Britpop, Oasis certainly won the war. Oh, yeah. How, How so? Let's take a look at the albums these two bands put out in the fall of 95. Blur... Uh, went first when The Great Escape came out in September. The only bad thing one could really say about The Great Escape is that it isn't as good as Park Life. Well, that's kind of like saying Radiohead's Amnesiac sucks because it simply isn't as good as Kid A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, in, in other words, complete utter bullshit. Yeah. Uh, the Great Escape is akin to Park Life's darker, angrier, younger brother with songs that continue and build on Auburn's lyrical preoccupation with the vapidity of contemporary society and culture while expanding the band's already eclectic musical palette. Uh, The Universal is a classic Britpop ballad taking the best aspects of Scott Walker's dramatic orchestral pop and augmenting them with lyrics that sneer at society's material, materialistic and money-minded aspirations. Uh, Top Man reinvents the angular, quirky pop of post-punkers XTC. Uh, Globe Alone is an infectious slice of manic, wired pop punk. Uh, Fade Away updates the slinky ska pop of the specials. And with the moody synth pop of the closing track, Yuko and Hero, Damon Auburn manages to take the mundanity and loneliness of nine to five office work and transforms it to a beautiful song of romantic yearning. For the most part, the album was critically praised in its time. Uh, It also sold three million copies in the UK and actually outsold Park Life throughout the rest of Europe. But that paled in comparison to what Oasis accomplished with their 1995 album. But before we go into that, Chris, what do you have to say about The Great Escape? Meh. Uh, you know, it's a you know, it's got a couple of great singles on it. Like I said, "Country House" is fun. "Charmless Man" is fun. Uh, a lot of their stuff, like you said, there it was very Kingsian. You know, that's a term that I guess we've associated with Blur, yeah. and it has this kind of uh, kind of wink, wink, hokiness at times. Uh, when it's done at its best, that's great, and it rocks, and it's fun, and it is shimmering. Uh, when it's not so great. Meh, you know, it's it gets kind of annoying uh, to me. And so, you know, Blur underwhelms me. I think after Park Life, I mean, really, I mean, there was like song two um, from the self-titled, uh, self-titled record in 1997. And then again, like a couple of nuggets here and there. But uh, I think you said it well. Uh, Oasis, uh, you know, Blur might have won the battle uh, with Country House, but uh, they lost the war. And as a matter of fact, I think uh, starting from here, uh, they got their asses kicked and they got their mm-hmm. asses handed to them uh, well, for sure. We'll see because uh, what happens with the astounding success of Definitely Maybe from the previous year and two singles reaching number one, number two, respectively, in the spring and summer of 95. Right, we're going to go to Oasis now. The stage was set for Oasis's second album, What's the Story, Morning Glory. And the stage was set for that album to be a monumental album. If anything, it exceeded all expectations by becoming arguably the defining album of the decade in the UK and for a generation. Um, If I have to explain the all-time classic stadium anthems 
Wonderwall, Don't Look Back in Anger, and Champagne Supernova, you probably should not be listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 get lost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the in the UK alone, the album sold 16 million copies. Whereas yeah. in the US, it sold 4 million on the strength of Wonderwall hitting the top 10 of the Billboard pop chart and Champagne Supernova hitting the top 20 of the same chart. That's a whole lot of commercial success, but does it measure up artistically? You bet your warm, bitter ale it does. Uh, there are some asshole contrarian critics, particularly in the UK, who like to poo-poo what's the story morning glory just because they don't like the idea of some loud-mouthed working-class northerners having created a perfect pop rock album and one of the single greatest albums ever made. And perfect is exactly what Morning Glory is from start to finish. Songwriter and guitarist Noel Gallagher expanded his musical language and palette to include lush orchestral arrangements in the ballads, a Phil Spector-esque wall of sound of guitars on the rockers, and an increasing sensitivity and penchant for self-reflection in his lyrics. Gallagher was on such a songwriting hot streak spanning the first and second albums that the B-sides and outtakes from this period were better than most bands' A-level material. Oh, yeah. Uh, don't believe me? Check out the B-sides and outtakes compilation called The Master Plan, released in 1998. The most amazing thing about this album, though, is how it's endured uh, throughout the years. Living here in South Korea, I can attest that I still hear songs from this album on the radio and on TV commercials. Any young band today that plays catchy, melodic rock and roll with big anthemic choruses is tipping their hats to and is inspired by Oasis. Uh, in 2012, Rolling Stone magazine placed What's the Story, Morning Glory at number 378 in their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. On the most recent list in 2020, it went up to number 157. How much do you want to bet it'll crack the top 100 on the next list? Probably. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris, I've spoken enough. Where do you stand on Oasis and Blur? Well, you already talked about Blur. <laughs> yeah. Uh, th this record, like you said, it's it's very, very, very good. Uh, just from a personal kind of head versus heart uh, divide, I still uh, prefer definitely maybe uh, to this just because it has a a unity to it and a kind of a swagger and a mission to it. It's just basically, it's just a, it's like a unified vision. Uh, whereas this record uh, is way more ambitious, but also, like I said, it's incredible, but it kind of has, it, you see like Noel Gallagher kind of, you know, that there's that expression, uh, it ain't cocky if you can back it up. Yeah. Uh, you know, Gallagher's kind of the epitome of that. And so here we are in 1995 uh, they're arguably as big in the UK at that point as the Beatles were 30 years earlier. And I've always gotten the sense that uh, Noel Gallagher uh, took that as a challenge in making this record. Oh, oh, you know, oh, we're as big as the Beatles. How about, well, how about we take a swing for being better than the Beatles? I mean, come on. I mean, interpolating the familiar notes from Lennon's Imagine to begin Don't Look Back in Anger is a pretty obvious wink, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I look at this record. And you've got uh, track three, which is Wonderwall, and track four, uh, Don't Look Back in Anger. Uh, there are very, very, very few records that I can think of that have a back-to-back -back coupling yeah. of songs as good as that. 
I mean, maybe a couple of those Jimmy Miller produced uh, Stones records from the the late 60s and early 70s. Maybe the beginning of Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Uh, Maybe the beginning of an album we'll get to in our uh, 1997 episode in this fourth Golden Age Age of Rock series. Hint, British weirdo outer space rock. Uh, But even uh, this particular twosome is uh, jaw-dropping. But even then, it's just jaw-dropping. I mean, I still feel these songs in my bones uh, when I uh, listen. And hell, I feel them in my bones when I even think of them. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, this is with this album. Uh, yeah, they effectively, we talked about this feud with Blur. Um, this was just a huge ass kicking. And uh, this was a declaration of supremacy uh, uh, for uh, Oasis. Yeah. And, and, and here's the irony of it all. Noel Gallagher and uh, Damon Auburn, they're friends now. They're buddies. All right. <laughs> they, uh, what I read, they talk to each other once a month. Mm-hmm. And I think I think last year, um, Auburn, under the Gorillas, his moniker, Gorillas, uh, recorded a track with Noel Gallagher, guesting Noel Gallagher, and released it. Well, hey, uh, how about and that? In the uh, a recent issue of Mojo, uh, Liam, Liam Gallagher was on the cover, and they interviewed him. And apparently in the middle of the interview – Graham Coxon, blur guitarist, walked into the restaurant with his girlfriend and Liam went up and gave him a great old big hug and they talked for like 10 minutes. <laughs> well, hey, so, you know, hey, water, could, water, water under the bridge. <laughs> hey, you know, maturity and sobriety can do wonders for us all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, okay. So now, uh, you know, we're, we, we've started this episode in Britain and, you know, this is going to be a, a theme to beginning episode. We're going to stay in Great Britain. Uh, so in, we started this with, uh, the swaggering kind of, uh, dick swinging, uh, contest between uh, Oasis and Blur. And now we are we, going, we, we, to, get, we get to the smoldering now. Yes. Yes. We get to the smoldering, uh, and smoldering by the opposite sex. Uh, this was a, uh, watershed year and the absolute zenith of the career of one Polly Jean Harvey. Uh, yes. PJ Harvey. Uh, who uh, in this year uh, released her greatest album, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, to bring you my love, uh, which you know is really is uh, really just dark and harrowing and just an incredible, uh, uh, incredible album. So let's talk about this now. Uh, back when the Village Voices annual Paz and Jobs Paz and Job Critics Poll was still a thing, uh, you often had to take that Intelligentsia clicks choices for the year's top album with a grain of salt. Here are two good examples. In 1999, uh, Moby's Play and the Magnetic Fields 69 Love Songs were one and two. Now, uh, these were above far superior titles like the Flaming Lips Soft Bulletin, Wilco Summer Teeth, and the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Resonant House album, yes, Built the Spills, Keep It Like a Secret. Uh, now let's uh, rewind 20 years earlier to 1979. Uh, the winner that year, number one, Graham Parker's Squeezing Out Sparks. Uh, what was number two? Neil Young's Rest Never Sleeps. Now, how did that one age? Uh, my bet is yeah. that uh, no one in, in this world under the age of 50 has ever even heard of Graham Parker. So, And, and apparently no one in the Village Voice heard The Clash's London Calling in 1979. <laughs> oh, but, but, but coincidentally, that finished, I think, like in the top three the next year. Because it came out, yeah, it, no. it, it finished high in 1980, which is kind of no. weird. So, yeah. yeah, but anyway, you remember that was the day when, you know, the Pony Express was still around, not the internet. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but anyway, 
So I will say this, though. Once in a while, uh, those voters actually did get it right, as they did here in 1995 uh, with P.J. Harvey's Magnificent to Bring You uh, My Love. It is a, a completely singular uh, record. Uh, nothing else sounds like it and nothing else feels like it. Uh, P.J. Harvey had established herself as a breaker of ground and smasher of rock and roll sexual convention a few years earlier with 1992's Dry and especially 1993's Rid of Me, which has the best songs about dicks written by a woman I've ever heard. <laughs> now, a lot can happen in two years, apparently. And I'm not sure that any of us were prepared for the maturity or murky minimalism of To Bring You My Love. It was just a huge leap forward uh, by any uh, by any measure. Uh, now, this was one of those albums that when you first hear it, you're not quite sure if it's any good. But you know immediately that it doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard before. Uh, best, ex most towering example of that one is Radiohead's Kid A. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a real kind of what the fuck uh, reaction, but then you, then you repeat it and then you slowly begin to recognize that a masterpiece of mood and tension has uh, come upon us uh, here in this case. Now, uh, to bring you my love begins with the title track in which Harvey's bluesy, swampy, spooky, hypnotic guitar riff uh, fades in, grows in power and never, ever relents over the course of its five and a half minutes through which B.J. literally makes a deal with the devil to desperately recover uh, lost love. Uh, yes, this album is very dark and very oddly biblical for someone who professes not to be a believer. Um, it then, uh, from there, proceeds to uh, the wonderful Meet Z Monster, uh, which is just a kick-ass, uh, banging, uh, blues rock song. Uh, let, 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 me, let me just uh, describe this. Crunch, bang, growl. Uh, primal blues swamp material, also a very well-disguised feminist anthem. Uh, quote, uh, big black monsoon, take me with you, uh, unquote. That is some defiant shit right there. Uh, next up is Working for the Man, slinky, sexy, bass group driven, mesmerizing lead guitar line, and organ in the echoes. And then the, never, and then the album from there just never lets up. Uh, it hits its peak uh, with the incredibly uh, well uh, uh, arranged and delivered uh, song, uh, the most famous song from the album, the sensual, uh, poignant, quieted rocker, Down by the Water. Now, maybe the song is not about a miscarriage and actually is about baby murder, uh, but I choose to believe the former, and that, for me, makes it an extraordinarily powerful listen. All told, uh, this is a deep, dark territory, uh, this album, Deep Dark Territory, riddled with perhaps ironic religious imagery that owes its sound and feel as much to Captain Beefheart, yeah. uh, there is evidence of that, as it does to any Brit folkster or any Mississippi bluesman. Uh, it really feels like a baptism performed in mud. Uh, hey, fellas, want to know what the confident desperation of an intelligent woman sounds like? Invest in this record. Uh, as a postscript uh, that circles back around to the uh, tastemakers and guardians of the rock canon, uh, this album has unfortunately fallen off the radar of reverence. Uh, we often cite the latest update of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums list from two years ago on this podcast. Hey, we just did it 10 minutes ago. Uh, but I find that, that that list is just endlessly telling. Uh, this latest edition in 2020 uh, two other P.J. Harvey albums made that list. 
Rid of Me came in at 153, and 2000's Stories by the Sea, or excuse me, Stories by the City, Stories by the Sea came in at 313. The former strong showing is understandable and justifiable, but the latter? Excellent album, but I figure Tom York's presence on five of the songs uh, tickled the Radiohead fanboys within the younger, more diverse, uh, more diverse voting base, and that made a difference. Uh, meanwhile, uh, to bring uh, to bring you my love, which is a much better album than both of those, in my opinion, is left out in the cold, which is just criminal, man. So, Artie, what, what's your take on uh, to bring you my love? Yeah, this was my portal into all things PJ Harvey uh, years ago uh, when I got it um, um, in my early twenties. No, I, I agree with. I really can't add much to anything. Um, I was kind of. At the end of the decade, Spin had this as the number three album of the 90s. Yeah. Okay. And then it doesn't even make Rolling Stones 500 albums of all time. Are yeah. For, yeah. For some well, reason, it, it got left behind at the station. And I mean, I guess I kind of get it because, uh, like I said, uh, the 2000 record is much more radio uh, friendly and it does have a couple of uh, of those Tom York collaborations that are like big, uh, uh, I guess, I don't know if you'd call them hits, but they're... But they're oh, yeah. pretty. It, it, it's a terrific record. It's one of her three best albums, but this one is one of her two best. <laughs> no, this is her best. This is the best. Maybe, uh, probably. Yeah. I, I would put it above "Rid of Me." Uh, you know, "Rid of Me" is is. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a a bold introduction or a bold statement. Uh, but this record, uh, just in the way it's arranged, it's the way it's produced, the way it's sung. Uh, there is a, just a mood and. A, a, you know, an aesthetic and attention, uh, not attention, uh, tension, uh, right. that is just really just palpable. And I mean, it just kind of, it's one of those things that like, like where the hand comes out of the speaker and just grabs you by the, by the collar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is definitely, uh, one of those uh, types of albums. So, uh, just tremendous stuff. And, uh, you know, like I said, number one, uh, on the, uh, peasant job ahead of tricky's, uh, Tricky's Max and K and uh, Moby's Everything is Wrong. So uh, for a banner year for EDM, uh, Polly Jean came out in front. Absolutely. And we're going to stay in Britain, Great Britain, because there's a lot more that came out in Great Britain in 1995. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, while the Gallagher brothers and Damon Auburn were gobbling up the music media and mainstream media headlines on one end of the Britpop spectrum, PJ Harvey was raising the bar for dark, seductive art rock on the other end. In between, though, there was a plethora of all-time great classic albums that bolster the case for 1995 as being a halcyon year for British rock and the fourth golden age of rock. Uh, here's the rundown. First, Radiohead, The Bends. It may be hard for younger listeners out there who only know Radiohead as that Hall of Fame progressive art rock band that expanded the parameters for high-minded experimentation in rock music in ways no other band has since or probably ever will. However, yours truly curmudgeons are old enough to remember a time in the mid-1990s when they were dismissed as fluky one-hit wonders. Mm -hmm. uh, that all changed in 95 when they released their second album, The Bends a solid commercial hit in the UK and Europe, and somewhat of an under-the-commercial-radar word-of-mouth success in North America. 
More importantly, it was, to the surprise of many, a resounding critical success that not only proved Radiohead were here to stay, but paved the way for the colossal success of the musical landscape-altering album that would follow a couple of years later. Uh, Their debut from 93, Pablo Honey, i.e. the one that has Creep, um, showed that that Radiohead had an original guitar-heavy sound that merged the sensitivity of 1980s indie rock, a la The Smiths, the arena-sized bombast of U2, and the righteous smarts and classiness of late 80s R.E.M., without really sounding exactly like any one of them. Um, with the Benz, the band made a quantum leap as songwriters and purveyors of some of the most innovative and expansive rock and roll of the entire decade. Uh, the heartbreaking, soaring, anti-plastic surgery ballad, Fake Plastic Trees, may be the most famous song on the album, thanks to the Clueless soundtrack. <laughs> and, and, and it was the biggest hit. But this perfect record yields one brilliant classic after another. Oh, yeah. High and Dry's gorgeous jangle pop just explodes with searing catharsis and the hymnal, almost Mike Oldfield-esque creepiness of a street spirit ends the album with one of the most haunting album closers ever. Uh, The Benz was considered pretty freaking great at the time, and it's only gotten better with age as a defining classic of the 1990s one of the greatest albums ever made and one of the most influential albums ever made. Seriously, without the Benz, you don't get Coldplay, Muse, Travis, Snow Patrol, Keen, or any other band of that ilk in the 21st century. I don't know of any band, other band, that I can say improved as much from their first album to their second yeah, album right. more than Radiohead. This was just a stunningly forward uh, for Radiohead. I mean, just remarkable. I mean, for those of us that, you know, that uh, got force fed or fire hosed a uh, never ending helping of the song Creep uh, two years before this. I mean, this was just an absolute shock. You know, when you first hear like High and Dry or you first hear Planet Telex, which is the album opener. All right. Now we move on to Brit Rock 95 brings us to Pulp, different class. Now, I have to admit. I'm not really a fan of pulp, aside from a handful of singles. I find most of their music to be too campy and too 80s, new wave cheesy. And I've always found frontman Jarvis Cocker's retro hipster geek persona to be utterly fucking obnoxious. (laughs) Um, He can be witty, but wit doesn't always translate to great depth or much depth at all. Uh, Nevertheless, of that handful of good songs that pulp has... Two of them are on 1995's Different Class. And one of those songs, I even I have to admit, is hands down one of the greatest pop singles ever recorded. A song so great that the story of 1995 cannot be told without it. That song, of course, is Common People. It's one of the very few instances where the group's obsession with the worst aspects of 1980s synth pop and cabaret club melodrama actually works and synthesizes as an appealing whole. Lyrically, it's the story of a rich female university student from Greece whose fetishization of the working class lifestyle manages to be both patronizing and condescending. (laughs) And, And Cocker sings it with an anger and conviction that belies his usual, you know, 
cornball posturing. Um, it's a song that's expertly crafted in how it builds momentum and carries the listener along to blissful pop catharsis. It was a huge monster hit in the UK and throughout most of Europe. Oh, yeah. And William Shatner recorded a cover of the song back in 2004. So if it's good enough for Captain Kirk, it's good enough for all of us. Chris. Yeah. And it's actually a more enjoyable version. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll keep this short. Okay, fine. Com- common people, uh, good original single. Uh, otherwise, next. Next. Good. This is more like it. The Verve, a northern yes. soul. Correct. Um, the Verve took psychedelic rock to new heights, no pun intended, uh, with their terrific debut album, A Storm in Heaven, in 1993, as covered on this podcast two episodes ago. Avoiding the twee, lightweight posturing of other bands on the shoegazer side of psychedelia, The Verve had a sound that offered swirling colors of guitar uh, and texture that were grounded by a solid backbone of both songs and arena-ready bombast. Now, maybe it was the large amounts of drugs that the band members were supposedly consuming at the time, but their 1995 follow-up, A Northern Soul, was shrouded in tense, edgy, nervous, in, in this raw wall of sound that one could only imagine must have shaken the foundations of the recording studio where it was made. Uh, the Verve transcended psychedelia into something darker, heavier, and more sinister, as heard in the opening one-two punch of monolith songs such as New Decade and This Is Music. The album has diversity, though, as evident by the exquisite soul ballad On Your Own and the orchestral pop of history, which sounds like a dry run for Bittersweet Symphony, the monstrous crossover hit they would have a couple of years later. Um, For as great and powerful of a singer as Richard Ashcroft was, indeed one of the few British singers of the 90s who did not make it a point to sound as self-consciously British as possible, (laughs) um, guitarist Nick McCabe is the star of this album. Um, With his exquisite hybrid of paint-peeling aggression and mournful yearning flourishes, all delivered with a palette of tones most guitarists would die for. Um, He proved himself to be among the trio of British rock guitar gods of the 1990s, along with Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood and Blur's Graham Coxon. Chris? Yep. uh, Really powerful record, uh, really great guitar uh, record. Uh, It's just... It's, it's pretty and it's just, uh, but like you said, tense, tense, tense. Interesting to me, uh, how the Verve and Radiohead's, uh, journeys through the nineties, they're collective. uh, They kind of mirror each other. If you think about it, right. Uh, you know, they release albums, uh, in the same years, you know, 93, 95, 97, uh, they kind of evolved with the same speed and sophistication, and both achieved a very hard to duplicate uh, and unique to them beauty. Uh, so, you know, and then obviously, you know, the very compelling and uh, very gifted uh, frontmen there in Richard Ashcroft and Tom York. So you, you see the parallels there and it's just kind of like, okay, you know, it's like one of these things is more British than the other. And then you're like, oh, no, it's not. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, pretty, yeah. By a fa- fabulous record, though. Fabulous. Yeah, and then and the last of this of these British uh, of these Brit pop or I don't know if I would call it Brit pop, but anyway, these British rock records of the '90s, um, where we have is Elastica and their self-titled debut album. Now we covered this album in detail in one of our episodes last year as part of our Vault segment. 
Nevertheless, it bears repeating that this is one of the most perfectly constructed, perfectly sequenced, perfectly produced, perfectly composed collections of new wave-ish punk or punkish new wave uh, pop nuggets ever committed to record. It's a shame that this album has been relegated to the status of 1990s one-hit wonders off the blissful attitude pop of the song Connection. This is the album that should get the retrospective plaudits that Pulp's different class regularly gets, particularly in the UK music media. Yeah, good so, call. Yeah, good call. So what, yeah, true, it's true. So what if several songs plunder melodies and riffs from legendary British post-punk band Wire? The history of rock is littered with people stealing stuff from other people, in some cases wholesale theft. See the first two Led Zeppelin albums. <laughs> uh, Elastica should not be punished for this. In fact, they should be recognized for having one of the fourth golden age of rock's finest albums and one of the greatest and one of the best Britpop albums ever made. Chris? Yeah, uh, I'll just keep this short. Uh, connection as a single. Amazing two and a half minutes of lightning in a bottle. I mean, riff, yeah. lyric, uh, Justine Frischman's phrasing. I mean, just so much energy, so much fun. Uh, it really just kind of confuses me how this band just kind of fizzled uh, after this album or they never, yeah. you know, they kind of disappeared uh, because uh, Justine Frischman there was a rock star of the highest order, yeah. uh, but she never really reached the status uh, she deserved. I think it's a good call that in, in a just and fair world wh where the gods uh, align things uh, with, uh, with enough uh, righteousness. Uh, yeah. Elastica and pulp chain uh, exchange places for sure. Yeah. For sure. Arturo and I now both use the same microphone, and what a darn good mic it is. If you've been with us for a while, you might notice we don't sound nearly as crappy or as clueless as we did in our first episode back there in January 2021. We're maturing, man. If you have any inkling to launch your own podcast, we recommend using the Ars Technica 2100X USB. It's a high-quality cardioid mic that helps limit ambient noise and echo and also gives a richness to your voice that you just won't get from a cheaper model. And its USB attachment allows you to record conveniently using your laptop and software like Zencaster, the excellent program we use to record ourselves natively from Texas and South Korea. It's as close to a super souped-up XLR system you can get for about 100 bucks. Find this Ars Technica gem on Amazon, or perhaps ask a locally owned music store to send you a, in a more indie direction. All right, so that ends our British segment of the 1995 episode of the fourth golden age of rock. Now we go stateside, and we start with a rather sad story <laughs> regarding one of our favorite bands, Chris. Yeah, uh, this is uh, so that was the British uh, uh, third uh, of this 1995 retrospective. We now enter our middle uh, age grunge or our middle stage grunge uh, third uh, of this uh, of this episode. And we begin with the uh, battle of Pearl Jam versus Ticketmaster. Uh, a lot of you, uh, you know, folks our age, maybe even a little younger will remember this one. Uh, this was basically uh, uh, David and Goliath where, uh, you know, David, uh, you know, at least David had a slingshot. Pearl Jam, they just had a guitar and a few bucks. 
they, they were never going to win this fight uh, for themselves, but they did leave a dent. So let me explain. Uh, now, given everything that has happened uh, to form our uh, present moribund capitalistic society uh, in the decades since, Pearl Jam's stand against the exorbitant uh, service fees and uh, the bullying uh, uh, artist relation tactics of Ticketmaster seems downright charming and quaint. But at the time, there was still a healthy and hopeful notion that a band of five guys could take on the world's corporate overlords and possibly win. And so the members of Pearl Jam picked this noble fight. Uh, now, let's give us to give you some background on Ticketmaster. Uh, this is a company that for years uh, has been the major seller and distributor of tickets to live events, uh, whether those events are concerts or Broadway shows or sporting events or hell, even the ice capades. Uh, it's as well known for its numerous strategic buyouts and acquisitions, however, than any sort of power over uh, music or uh, artists, bands or, or the concert uh, business. Uh, since its founding in the mid-1970s, uh, it has uh, merged uh, with its main competitor, Ticketron, in 1991. That's what gave it its, its current uh, and lasting ol oligarchical uh, status. Uh, at one point, it was uh, bought out by uh, Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. And then in 1998, uh, Allen and his investors sold it to Interactive Corp., uh, which is the owner of uh, USA Network. Uh, and uh, which uh, at that time they bought uh, Ticketmaster as a strategic piece for getting out in front of the Web 1.0 world. Uh, web point, you know, you know, that's back when like DSL was like you know cutting edge. Uh, but a decade later, the company uh, they gobbled up a couple of ticket resellers and also Frontline Management, which was a company that managed Aerosmith and other big name concert draws. Finally, Ticketmaster was purchased by event uh, promoter Live Nation. If you've attended a concert any time in the past 15 years, you know the name Live Nation. They are the player in that event promotion space. Anyway, it's clear that Ticketmaster was pretty much built on boardroom drama and cutthroat wheeling and dealing. Uh, that helps explain why their aggressive business practices in selling tickets through its client venues and profiting off fees that could arguably seen as predatory became so vilified back in the mid-1990s. Now, the most controversial of these fees are what are known as service fees. Uh, this is ostensibly a device uh, for recovering the cost of processing uh, all of the ticket orders. You know, the Ticketmaster's clients are the venues. Uh, you know, the venues use Ticketmaster to, you know, to sell the tickets and to order, the, you know, and to, to process these tickets. Okay, so this is supposed to be like a, a processing fee. Okay, but it's really hard to believe and strains credulity that it would ever cost $5 to offset the creation of an $18 ticket. To broke-ass young folks looking to flick a lighter while their favorite band plays their big power ballad, it sure felt like, feels like and continues to feel like price gouging. Those numbers I just cited, those are the real-life uh, origin story numbers and the source of Pearl Jam's distaste uh, for tech, uh, Ticketmaster and their subsequent refusal to work with them uh, during their 1995 summer tour. 
the band uh, wanted to cap that service fee on tickets to their shows at 10% or $1.80. Uh, this, of course, was a non-starter for Ticketmaster, which uh, usually uh, charged as much as three times uh, that number. That's where the $5 comes from. So then Pearl Jam, the populist band of the people for the people, dug in for a high-profile staring contest. Uh, it was a pretty costly decision uh, that cut them off from arenas and markets and inspired the firing of their drummer. And really, I mean, you, you know, you had this idea where, you know, if Ticketmaster was the only game in town, you know, they're the gun thugs. Uh, you try to take them on, you're going to get smacked. But as uh, the late uh, and, uh, brilliant uh, reporter Eric Bowler uh, reported for Rolling Stone back in late 1995. I think this was in December of 1995. Pearl Jam may have lost the battle, but it may just have sacrificed itself to win the war for the baby fan, baby bands that followed uh, in their wake. Uh, Bowler led that article this way. Quote, if Pearl Jam couldn't do it, who can? America's most powerful rock band thought it had Ticketmaster in its sights this year. By swearing off the ticketing giant during their summer tour, Pearl Jam tried to crack Ticketmaster's dominance in the, car in the concert business. By year's end, the corporation was more powerful than ever, but the Seattle Rockers had given the company a public relations nightmare by bringing, in, by bringing some of the industry's backroom dealings into the light. As a result, a previously rigid Ticketmaster started bending its service fee policies so that other alternative rock bands could mount low-cost tours without fleecing their fans. Quote, I'm not sure it helped Pearl Jam, said David Sestak, who co-manages live the band, uh, but it definitely helped consumers. To, now, to understand where Pearl Jam was coming from, we need to rewind a little bit back to 1994, uh, when the band not only filed an antitrust complaint against Ticketmaster, alleging monopolistic uh, business practices, but when uh, that's also when uh, guitarist Stone Gossard and bassist Jeff Ament testified as part of a congressional hearing uh, that same summer there in 1994. Yep, they were agitated about this whole thing pretty early on in their power rule the rock universe phase. Quoting now from an LA Times article published on July 1st, 1994, quote, Gossard and Ament, speaking on behalf of the five-member group, uh, said an absence of competition has allowed Ticketmaster to tack on exorbitant fees onto the base price of concert tickets. Justice Department officials have launched a probe into the matter and are expected to testify before the House panel next month. Quote, it's almost impossible for a band to do a tour of large arenas or other significant menus in major cities and not deal with uh, Ticketmaster, said Gossert, resplendent in a peach-colored shirt with blue velvet shorts. There's an image. Anyway, uh, quote, continuing, Gossard said Pearl Jam had planned a coast-to-coast -coast summer tour and wanted the cap to cop the costs of concert tickets at 18 bucks, but the band members canceled the tour after realizing they could not prevent Ticketmaster from tacking on service fees that would increase the price substantially. Uh, Gossard and Ament, who were joined at the hearing by managers of other rock bands, said they have become increasingly wary of Ticketmaster's control over pricing since the Justice Department allowed the company to buy Ticketron, which I mentioned earlier, in 1991. Now, uh, this, no, the LA Times, they also quoted Ticketmaster CEO at the time uh, as swearing, I mean just swearing, his company faced a, quote, highly competitive, unquote, marketplace and only brings in a dime per ticket. 
uh, for every ticket it sells. Now, considering the article mentions Ticketmaster generated a profit of seven point million of point five million dollars in nineteen ninety three, it was pretty pretty easy to call bullshit on that assertion. And so, really, we can look at what happened in the summer of nineteen ninety five as akin uh, to the run-up to one of those old uh, Marvin Hagler or Sugar, Sugar Ray Leonard fights back in the day, a year's worth of shit-talking followed by a TKO in the third round. But, you know, this was the kind of fight rockers with cloud who give a damn about their fans and want their music and live performances shared with the masses and with integrity will always fight. Heck, it's happening this year. Uh, earlier, uh, Early on in the year, Neil Young, uh, Mr., you know, the, the godfather of grunge there, he called out uh, Spotify, and we all know Spotify, for giving podcaster Joe, uh, Joe Rogan a nine-figure contract to give him the freedom to spread, to spread anti-vaccination misinformation. For Neil, it was a him or me moment. And yeah, he lost that one, technically, because Spotify ended up taking a pretty good beating there for a couple of months. Yet, lo and behold, if rock and roll will never die, then neither will its profiteering rapacious sponsors and distributors. Oh, well, at least it was a magnif- magnificent fight to watch unfold back then. Uh, so, Arturo, what say you? This is all you need to know. Uh, Greg Prado, in his 2009 uh, uh, excellent book, um, what's it called? Yeah, it's called Grunge is Dead, an oral history of Seattle rock music. Basically, when Pearl Jam filed the antitrust suit against Ticketmaster, right? Mm-hmm. And th- th- this lasted about a year. Uh, Ticketmaster changed the lawyers. They replaced their previous lawyer with a new lawyer. And I forgot the guy. I don't have the book in front of me. But uh, the new lawyer they hired, guess what? Used to work for the Department of Justice. Yep. Well, that, that, <laughs> so, that, 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 that is the legal industry so, in the United States for so, you. So, so, so all that was needed was a, that new lawyer made a phone call to his old bosses. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like before you know it, uh, the DOJ dropped dropped the investigation. Done. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, hey, that that you know, God bless America. I mean, seriously. I mean, that that is uh, something that happens here, where like prosecutors and regulators end up taking over the bad guys uh, at, some, yeah. at some point or another, or representing the bad guys. So, uh, yeah. what are you gonna do? So, uh, God bless Pearl Jam. Uh, like I said, band of the people, one of our favorite bands, and. Uh, just an incredibly uh, heroic uh, uh, campaign on their part that really won them uh, a lot of adoration and respect. And so uh, now let's talk about uh, another of uh, our uh, grunge heroes, Lane Staley. Uh, Arturo, what what do you have? Yeah, by the mid-1990s, Alice in Chains frontman Lane Staley's heroin addiction had spiraled out of control, basically to the point of no return. Um, he would be found dead in his home in 2002, eight years to the day after Kurt Cobain was found dead in his home. Uh, in 1995, however, Staley would leave us with his last two proper album statements as an artist before he disappeared into the heroin wormhole. First, there was the release of the album Above by the band Mad Season. His side project with Pearl Jam guitarist Mike McCready, Screaming Trees drummer Barrett Martin, and uh, bassist John Baker Saunders, who also died of a heroin overdose in 1999. Um, It was eagerly anticipated by rock music geeks at the time of its release, and it did not disappoint. There's an eerie, almost 
spectral quality uh, to the album's ambiance. And it's deep rooted in the blues in a way Alice in Chains only hinted at. Oh, yeah. Um, River of Deceit was the album's huge hit on rock radio. And it's stately, alluring folk rock chimes with a beauty that the Seattle grunge scene is rarely credited with producing. Uh, Long Gone Day is almost morphine-esque in its mm-hmm. smoky subterranean blues with a saxophone solo to boot. And uh, speaking of blues, opening track Wake Up is as languid and emotionally arresting as any slow-building blues monster of a song can be. Uh, classic grunge is never far away, though. Um, I don't know anything. Rocks with a lurching heaviness. It makes you think who the real brains behind Alice in Chains was. And uh, no- November Hotel is a monster instrumental jam that doesn't take away from the album's overall spooky mood. It got mixed reviews when it came out, but at least this curmudgeon thinks this album has held up well over the years and is his favorite grunge supergroup album. Chris? Yeah, agreed. It, it, this album definitely has held up uh, very well. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but it is a really beautiful, uh, poignant record in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, my favorite song on it, ironically enough, is I Don't Know Anything, but <laughs> you know, like River of Deceit, you, know, you mentioned Wake Up. Uh, there's just some some, some beautiful, uh, just sort of uh, profound, uh, profoundly uh, played and arranged uh, stuff on here. Uh, for what it's worth, McCready and Saunders uh, met each other uh, at, in uh, drug, alcohol and drug rehab. Uh, yeah. They were in the same facility at the same time. And that's kind of where uh, this band was kind of born. Uh, all of these guys, I'm not sure about Barrett Martin, but at least I know three out of the four guys were, uh, were recovering or uh, at least uh, in theory, recovering addicts. Um, and so again, I, I, that just sort of lends credence to the notion that uh, Seattle, while it was an incredibly uh, fertile uh, scene uh, with a lot of just wonderfully talented musicians, there also was a darkness uh, in that place that was uh, brought on by heroin and uh, related drugs. So, but hey, yeah. uh, but they at least they were proof that rehab centers could have a great house band. They sure did. And it produced one. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Alice in Chains actually broke up for a while. Yeah. Um, they called it a quote unquote hiatus <laughs> uh, after 1994's excellent Jar of Flies EP. Uh, Lane Staley's heroin relapse meant they couldn't tour with Metallica, Suicidal Tendencies and Danzig. Wow. On a summer on a summer tour in '94, and they were replaced by, wait for it, Candlebox. <laughs> yeah, oh motherfucker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, the band started rehearsing again in early '95 and invited Staley back into the band. Uh, the recording of the album was, as can be expected, when working with someone having an intense and all-consuming drug addiction fraught with tension as well as uh, as well as it was long and arduous. Uh, after almost half a year in the studio, Allison Chains' self-titled album came out in November 95, and sonically, it immediately stood in stark contrast to their previous records. Uh, unlike the, the, the tense, anxious, almost claustrophobic feeling of the previous LP, the, their masterpiece, Dirt. This one has a sense of space and a widescreen quality to it that takes its time to unfold. Uh, Jerry Cantrell's guitar work isn't as consistently bludgeoning as on Dirt, 
Uh, indeed, on this album, he shows an array of tones and gnarly, naughty riffs that hint at an almost post-punk or post-hardcore influence. Um, this isn't to say that Allison Chains' trademark jackhammer grunge isn't in place, as evident by the relentless grind of, well, opening track grind. grind. Yeah. <laughs> and again, the latter being one of the heaviest and most rocking songs in the band's entire catalog. Uh, the blues and folk moods so prevalent on their Jar Flies EP are also brought back with Cantrell's composition, Heaven Beside You, uh, as nasty of a send-off to a former lover as you'll ever hear in rock. Yeah. Um, Allison Chains' self-titled album, often called The Dog Album, for its depiction of a three-legged dog on the cover, is unique in the band's discography in that it really is a grower. Uh, it meanders in spots. It has a seemingly improvisational jam band quality to a few songs in the second half. And overall, it sounds like a band pushing itself to explore new sonic ground. Had the Staley era Allison Chains gone on to record more albums, this one would be seen as the transitional record uh, in their catalog. As it is, it stands as the most curious in, uh, interesting album not their best but their most curious and interesting one in their discography and they re rewards repeated listening oh yeah Chris? i know uh, absolutely it, it it's a banger uh and it's it's got it's kind of strange and uh, quirky but but kind of wonderful uh, moments uh huge fan of again i mean that's just like a perfect uh, hard rock uh, uh little uh single uh and I, I always loved the uh the harmony vocals on that it's like haunted house shit uh, yeah. I love it. Uh, but here's the thing about AIC. Now, they are paradoxically uh, one of the most influential bands uh, in terms of today's uh, uh, young metal and hard rock bands. Uh, but they're also one of rock's greatest and saddest cases of what if. As yeah. in, uh, what if Staley could have cleaned up, gotten back in sync with Jerry Cantrell, and moved on into a bright, limitless future? Uh, we'll never know that, uh, as you just said. Uh, this was probably one of those transitional records that was like a bridge from one masterpiece to what surely would have been another. Uh, you know, they these guys, they had it in them. They were just that talented and had a lot uh, to say. But, hey, you know, we'll never know. But at least we're left uh, with this self-titled farewell. So... You know, long live uh, Allison Chains, R.I.P. Lane Staley, uh, really talented, uh, compelling uh, guy. I mean, just such a talent and just so capable of moving vocal performances. And, you know, heroin, heroin sucks because we <laughs> lost this guy and we lost so, so many other gifted musicians to that goddamn drug. So. All right. Well, speaking of a speaking of a drug that people just can't get over, man, <laughs> A whole lot of people out there were addicted to this album by this one woman. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, back in 1995, uh, a jagged little uh, pill fix was <laughs> was a thing on many a college campus. You know, this album really, I think, has aged well, and I think it deserves uh, respect. Uh, but at the time, it was just kind of a... Uh, you know, coming on the, the heels as it uh, did uh, from the sort of the grunge and, and hard rock uh, revival, uh, given that it was uh, done by Alanis, who had been doing kind of teeny pop uh, uh, based in Canada uh, before this, you know, it, it was hard not to be cynical, but it does deserve respect. It's a really, it is a really good solid pop record. But so uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, now, wait. 
someone a, a, a very little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, well, there, there's a few things to say. Uh, now, wait a second. Uh, somebody blew uh, Dave Coulier in a theater. Uh, legend has it that the goofier uncle from TV's Full House is the subject of that beloved anthem of scorn, You Ought to Know. Expertly co-crafted and produced by studio ace Glenn Ballard and featuring Chili Peppers mates at the time, Dave Navarro and Flea on, on guitar and bass respectively, the song thrusts the compelling, relatable, slyly charismatic Alanis Morissette into popular consciousness. As we said, if you were in college at the time, uh, back then, and you knew one woman, just one woman your age, you very likely heard Jagged Little Pill over and over and over and over and over, and you probably pretended to like it more than you actually did. Uh, peer pressure being what it is and still uh, what it was and still is, that pretension posture included a lot of other women too. I mean, the album was on all the stereos all the time. Uh, I guess its song cycle was a triumphant rebel yell of young female independence and confession. Obviously, you and I, Arturo, were not the core intended audience, but <laughs> at least I could appreciate this. Uh, and removed from the time and place of 95, I can admit it's actually a pretty good album, which is not bad for a Canadian chanteuse whose claim to fame mainly in America before Jagged Little Pill was being slimed on uh, that popular Nickelodeon comedy jamboree for kids, You Can't Do That on Television. <laughs> Remember when it was a bad idea to say the words, I don't know? Anyway, I digress. Uh, Alanis ultimately grew up, and from the sounds of it, boy, did she. I've always been a big fan of the lyric, I'm brave, but I'm chicken shit, from the song Hand in My Pocket, which, in my opinion, is Jagged Little Pill's best song. Uh, yeah. Morissette's lyrics are famously superficial, you know, like how the song Ironic should be renamed Coincidence. But that one and uh, several other wordings throughout the album do resonate. Now, uh, let's talk about this album's uh, runaway, unbelievable success. The uh, Recording Industry Association of America's website, uh, RAAA, their website, uh, tells me that Jagged Little Pill is now certified as 16 times platinum, putting it just below the Beatles' 1967-1970 uh, comp and just above the Bee Gees' Saturday Night Fever soundtrack on the uh, list of the most shipped albums of all time. It actually is at number 20 on that list. On that list. Now, keep in mind that the modern-day streaming landscape has altered this list significantly over the past decade, uh, the Eagles 1971 to 1975 greatest hits album is now well ahead of Michael Jackson's thriller for the top spot. Still, number 20 is pretty damn good. Now, uh, let's further contextualize things. If we rank albums released by female artists, uh, Jagged Little Pill comes in at number three behind Shania Twain's Come On Over and Whitney Houston's soundtrack to the, uh, to the movie The Bodyguard, which means, yes... There is not a single female rock and roll artist who's enjoyed a more successful volley in the U.S. or global, globally, really, than Alanis Morissette. She's released follow-up albums, but who gives a shit? Alanis did indeed codify herself in the annals of rock and roll history here. 
Whether uh, college-educated dudes our age want to admit it or not, Jagged Little Pill is one of the seminal releases in understanding and telling the story of the fourth golden age of rock. And hey, it did become a Broadway uh, musical, and uh, I guess that ain't bad either. So, Arturo, what's your take on Jagged Little Pill? It's like rain on a sunny day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I... I've never liked this album. I've always thought it sucked. Uh, I thought the lyrics are shit. I think the production is too glossy. But yes, it is one of the biggest selling albums of all time. It is a a seminal galvanizing moment for women in rock. Um, And you cannot tell the story of the fourth golden age of rock without this album that owned 1995 and 1996. So I give it credit there. And that's the only credit I'll give. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for, for what it's worth, a shockingly low number here. Uh, Ironic on Spotify has only 307,916,457 plays. I would have expected that to be over a billion. But hey, you know, like you said, it's like rain. So yeah, <laughs> that's all we can say. On this episode... Chris and I broke down the incredible year of 1995. On the next episode, the fourth golden age of rock will take us to 1996. Beck throws away the shackles of one-hit wonder status away, far away, as he unleashes one of the greatest, most innovative, inventive, virtuosically eclectic albums ever made. Weezer releases an album that flopped at the time, but would go on to earn cult status as one of the pivotal emo punk statements of all time. Jeff Tweedy announces himself as the next great American songwriter, and Wilco as the next great American band, with a good old-fashioned double album classic. Both Oasis and Fish, yes, Fish, put on generation and era-defining concerts that attract upwards of 100,000 people. Slater Kinney at once elevate and transcend the Riot girl scene with the feminist punk classic Call the Doctor. Stone Temple Pilots finally soar past the grunge copycat accusations with a masterpiece of an album. And the curmudgeons will answer the question, Is Tool's Anima really a top 10 all-time heavy metal album? Tune in as the fourth golden age of rock continues in two weeks. Okay, so now we're going to move on from Alanis and, uh, you know, glossy superficiality done very well to a a dark slice of uh, American cinema verite of the time that actually birthed a pretty damn good soundtrack. Hell yeah, it did. Uh, In 1995, uh, photographic artist and maverick film provocateur Larry Clark released his controversial film Kids, and it was a huge indie hit, earning $20.5 million off its modest $1.5 million budget. That's what you call a profit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Starring both a teenaged Rosario Dawson and a teenaged Chloe Sevigny. Um, it's an observational, almost like you said, cinema verite-esque 
look into the lives of a group of drug-using, sexually promiscuous New York City teenagers. Now, as good as the movie was, and I do think it's a great film, um, however, we wouldn't be talking about it on this podcast if it weren't for its fantastic and era-defining soundtrack. After spending most of the 1980s as Jay Mascus's bass-playing sidekick in Dinosaur Jr., uh, Lou Barlow found critical respect with his own seminal indie rock band, Sebado, in the early 1990s. We discussed them in the previous episode. Uh, that earned him the gig of supervising the soundtrack to Clark's gritty urban tale of dysfunctional teenagers. And Barlow made music to match, mostly under the name of his second side project, Folk Implosion. Uh, instrumentals of moody, subterranean, lo-fi funk grooves and ramshackle hip-hop beats are prevalent. But the standout tracks are two songs Barlow put his vocals to, the first one being the smash hit Natural One. Uh, released as a single in November 95, the song hit number four on the modern rock chart and a shocking number 29 on the Billboard pop chart. Yeah. Me meaning Barlow had not with his first side project, but with his second, a much bigger hit than Jay Mascus ever had with Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, go figure. That must have rankled Mascus's balls. <laughs> In any case, it's no wonder why Natural One is one of the best rock and pop singles of the 90s. Uh, its earworm bass line portends a menace that's right around the corner. Its guitar lick is an exercise in seductive simplicity and Barlow's detached vocal croon simmers with sensuality. Um, the other great vocal track from Folk Implosion on the soundtrack, Nothing Gonna Stop, is a grimy piece of mutant dance funk with its persistent three-note bass line. Um, the other great virtue of this soundtrack is the inclusion of two Daniel Johnston tracks, both versions of his song Casper, one an original version from the early 1980s and one a then-contemporary re-recorded version. For those of you out there who don't know, and I'll assume that will be most if not all of you, Daniel, Daniel Johnston is arguably America's all-time greatest outsider musical artist and quite possibly one of the most underrated songwriters who ever lived. Uh, this was a person who lived his mental illness through his songs and his music he self-produced and self-recorded a series of albums uh, in the early 80s uh, full of amateurish, childlike naivete, yet engulfed in a haunting, resonant, heartbreaking sadness and existential resignation that most songwriters would need a lifetime of living to understand. His songs were transmissions from a sad, lonely corner of cruel, redneck America. He was from West Virginia. <laughs> um, Desperately optimistic, yet consciously philosophical about their creator's lot in life. He died in his sleep three years ago at the age of 58. And if anything, the kids soundtrack introduced a generation of alternative and indie rock fans to the brilliance of his work. Chris, what do you say about the kids soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, Daniel Johnson is is kind of like a perfect contributor to uh, to the soundtrack of a movie like Kids, which you know has that sort of uh, darkness and uh, uh, somberness uh, ultimately uh, to it. Uh, look, I you know before I started researching this record, I honestly didn't remember uh, the soundtrack uh, other than Natural One, which you know obviously clung tightly to MTV's daytime rotation. 
you know, for a good chunk there of 1995. But I do remember the film. Uh, just has a remarkable script, and its final scenes are just devastating. Uh, uh, amazing performance by Chloe Sevigny. Uh, I think that's how you say it. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, or Savigny or whatever, but just amazing performance. But And you got to remember, this was the uh, end of the stage when a teen drama about the intersection of AIDS and risky teen behavior was still powerful and meaningful. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, a foregone era that the Gen Zers wouldn't understand. But, you know, so if the if the soundtrack wasn't entirely emblematic of the era, uh, the, the film sure as hell was. Uh, I got to say, though, I, just as a as a post final thought, I kind of like folk implosion a lot more than I did. So Sebado, yeah. uh, they did. Oh, they were just fun and weird and funky in the widest way possible. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that combination always works for me and my sensibilities. And so that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, Folk Implosion were a solid group. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So now we go from a, um, an indie legend, I guess you would say, to a guy who inexplicably became a legend. <laughs> Chris. Yeah. And, and, and this ought to be fun because you and I uh, kind of uh, uh, you know are diametrically opposed uh, in terms of uh, this guy's legacy. Uh, going to talk about Dave Grohl and the birth of Foo Fighters and uh, Foo Fighters' debut uh, album, which was a self-titled album, which was released in uh, 1995. So this album, uh, the self-titled debut from Foo Fighters, is probably the most valuable demo tape ever assembled. Uh, seriously, the album features Dave Grohl's demo recordings of its songs. Uh, it's a cleaned up version of what he uh, sold to Capitol Records. And it launched an enterprise that was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2021 and made Mr. Grohl a very rich man to the tune of $300 million plus. Last episode, I mentioned that Nirvana's Kurt Cobain is my rock and roll hero. Well, his drummer is on my short list of runner-ups. When you think about, uh, really, what Grohl endured and how high the stakes were for him uh, for a three-year period there between 94 and 97, it's pretty incredible. Uh, he began working on these songs uh, ostensibly as a, as a side project and creative outlet uh, while he was still a member of, of Nirvana. Surely a major motivation for his work was to win over his boss and land a few songs on future Nirvana albums. But he knew as well as anybody, of course, just how much of a self-destructive train wreck that boss was. And between uh, Cobain's increasingly self-destructive behavior and growing displeasure with his bandmates, it seemed like a good idea to have a plan B. Longtime music journalist Michael Azarad, uh, the author of the great uh, book on rock and roll, This Band Could Be Your Life, uh, wrote a piece for The New Yorker last, <clears throat> last year uh, detailing his off-the-record and true friendship with uh, Cobain. In it, he tells this, uh, this story, uh, quoting from the article, Once, I stopped by Kurt's hotel room when he started yelling that he wanted to fire Dave, unquestionably one of the great rock drummers, for being an unsubtle and unspontaneous musician. The thing was, Dave was staying in the room right next door. I hissed at Kurt. He can hear. I don't care, Kurt yelled back, more at the adjoining wall than at me. I was sure that Dave heard the whole thing. Regardless, Dave was already aware of Kurt's feelings. 
He told his biographer, Paul Brannigan, that on a flight from Seattle to Los Angeles, he had overheard uh, Kurt badmouthing his drumming two rows back. Once they landed, Dave told their trusty, uh, trusty Scottish tour manager, Alex McLeod, that he was quitting the band after the last scheduled show. McLeod talked him out of it. So, you know, given that those excerpts, uh, competitiveness perhaps fueled Grohl's early work. But that work became instantly urgent and instantly therapeutic after Cobain committed suicide, like we said, on April 5th of 1994. Uh, Grohl lost one of his best friends in an unimaginably tragic way. I say one of his best friends, even even after that shit talking. Uh, he, so he loses him in an unimaginably tra- uh, tragic way. Oh, oh, and yeah, he he was now out of a job. Uh, maybe he could have faded into obscurity or near anonymity the way his bandmate Chris Novoselic did, or perhaps he could have become Tom Petty's drummer. Yes, Petty, as has been reported offered the gig to Grohl in the fall of 1994. Instead, Grohl chose the courageous route and put everything he had into his new goofily named Foo Fighters project. While he has often said in interviews that it was a fun thing to do to help him heal, I have to believe there was more to it than that. And so came this first album. Grohl plays every instrument instrument and every note on this thing, except for a Greg Dooley rhythm guitar part on Ecstatic. Uh, the music that resulted, in my opinion and in my view, is extraordinary. Hard-charging, orthodox classic rock amped up like a mofo, pretty melodies and intense choruses, definite reverence for Husker Du, possible, possible reference for goofball 70 rock, 70s rockers like Steve Miller, definite influences from his formative years in the DP, DC punk scene, obvious mentorship from or revenge on Kurt Cobain, Oh, and the, and the drumming is pretty goddamn great, too. Grohl has written about a dozen genuinely great rock songs over the years. Half of them are on this debut. <laughs> uh, let's list them. Uh, the Mighty album opener, This Is A Call, featuring a kick-ass outro. Catchy as hell banger, I'll stick around with its infectious I don't owe you anything refrain. Alone and Easy Target, which must have been written with Cobain in mind as its intended singer. I mean, come on, the harmony vocals might as well be extracted from Nevermind's On a Plane. Then there's Floaty, with its lovely acoustic guitar introduction, dreamy echoing vocals, and the best drumming on the album, which is really saying something considering the personnel in question. And finally, there's uh, Dully's typical uh, sensual riffing on Ecstatic, and Grohl's mesmerizing thumping timekeeping. Now, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, Grohl's output was never as consistently great again. The worst thing that ever happened to Foo Fighters, if you think about it, was becoming a real band with real bandmates for Grohl. In sports terms, uh, Grohl was a generational talent as a drummer. He also was capable of greatness as a songwriter and artist when his back was up against the wall. The follow-up to Foo Fighters, the album, was 1997's The Color and the Shape. The original Foo Fighters lineup consisted of uh, Grohl, Nirvana touring guitarist Pat Smear, and two guys from Sunny Day Real Estate, uh, the rhythm section from Sunny Day Real Estate. Going in, uh, there was no guarantee that a second Foo Fighters album would be a success. Had Grohl already enjoyed his 15 minutes of fame as a frontman? Who knew? Or who could tell? So this was essentially another Grohl solo album, 
with a lot on the line and with session guys on payroll. Uh, what sells this notion is the fact that Grohl re-recorded the album after dissatisfaction with his new drummer. Go figure. And, you know, Grohl went in there and, and did all the drumming himself on the re-recording. Uh, Grohl has said in interviews that he wasn't ready to give up drumming for a full-time role in exchange for a full-time role as a guitarist and singer. Thus, uh, while it isn't as good as the first record, the color and, sh and the shape is nevertheless very, very good. And it features three amazing singles that really uh, put Foo Fighters on the map and kept them there. Uh, the, there is the so popular It Is Now Annoying Everlong, which is up to 605 million plays on Spotify as of this recording. I'm guessing you probably know the song. Uh, Un it, unfortunately, yeah, I hate yeah. that fucking song. Yeah. <laughs> It, it is a good song. It's just when you hear it for, you know, the two millionth time, uh, it gets old. Anyway, the other two. There's My Hero, which is an anthem as uplifting as its title. And the best song role has ever written, Monkey Wrench, which is just so rocking and so edgy and yet so catchy. And it features just this spellbinding, unhinged, intensely rendered uh, bridge verse, uh, quoting in part, I still remember every single word you said and all the shit that somehow came along with it. Uh, well, we all do in at least one instance in our lives. Good stuff. Once the color and the shape became a huge success, and drummer Taylor Hawkins and guitarist Chris Shiflett uh, subsequently joined the band a couple years later, Grohl was comfortably set to tread in safe, formulaic, uh, formulaic dad-friendly radio rock for the next quarter of a century, with a few periodic exceptions. Uh, seize call, call, call it what it is, dad rock. Okay, yeah, maybe it is dad rock, but see, but the exceptions, uh, you need to de definitely check out Stacked Actors and Rope. Uh, I especially love Rope off the very, very underrated 2011 record, Wasting Light. Uh, that's Foo Fighters. I think that's their third best record. Anyway, hating on the Foo Fighters has become a new generation's version of hating on the Eagles. Fine. <laughs> But I cannot and will not ever hate on Dave Grohl. What a talent and what an inspiring story that guy has. Arturo, feel free to uh, retort. Of all the big name, you know, stadium rock bands uh, that have ever existed, there is no band whose music I hate more than the Foo Fighters. I really can't stand this fucking band. Um, and there are many reasons for it. Uh, I will go on record as saying I love the first Foo Fighters album. Mm -hmm. the, first Foo, the first Foo Fighters album is great. Every single song, Grohl wrote that with Nirvana in mind. He had Nirvana in mind, right? He, wrote, he had written those songs to be potential, potential Nirvana songs. Hopefully, Kurt will like this, you know, that kind of thing. And um, it brings to mind what I, I mentioned something earlier in a text message we had um, Robert Fripp, the guitarist of, from the legendary pro progressive rock band King Crimson, said the best work, his best guitar work ever was when he was right, when he was playing for other people's records, hmm. doing, doing session work for other bands or other artists like David Bowie. He did a lot of stuff with Bowie. Um, and he said that's where his best guitar work because it was people giving him the encouraging him and giving him the freedom to be his best. Whereas in King Crimson, he had to be a boss and tell people what to do. Yeah. Um, I think Grohl was at his best when he wasn't being himself, 
when he was trying to write his songs, patterning them to a band that he was clearly the second banana to. Once he developed his own uh, songwriting voice, if you want to call it that, it was nothing more than second-rate Husker Du uh, or even third-rate Dinosaur Jr. <laughs> and the, the dude has even on record, on record, has admitted that like most of what he's done is just ripping off Husker Du. <laughs> he really, he really has admitted it. He's, everything I've ever done is a ripoff of Husker Du. And he's being a bit self-deprecating, but I'm sure there's a little bit of honesty in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, to me, it's just conservative, safe, bland, corporate radio, streamlined schlock rock of the worst kind, of the worst variety. Now, that's the music. Dave Grohl is a person his nice guy persona gets on my fucking nerves because I do I do think there's a little bit of a uh, there's a little bit of phony baloney in him. I, I, I I've always found that in him. I'm sorry. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but there's a reason Kurt Cobain was annoyed by him. <laughs> you know, I mean, Cobain really got sick of him toward the end of Nirvana's run there, um, and it's just obnoxious when I see stuff on YouTube. I've seen a few clips of him. Like there was a clip I saw him performing in Norway or Sweden or some European stadium show. And this is re- recent years, a few years ago. And he's up there going, come on, everybody. Let's get into the rock and roll spirit. Yeah, rock on. It's like, shut the fuck up. Like, what are you? What are you, Gene Simmons? I mean, Jesus Christ, dude. Oh, oh. Fuck, fuck Dave Grohl's Foo Fighters music. The worst of all the big name Hall of Fame stadium bands. And fuck his nice guy persona. It's grating. It's annoying. And I'm going to end it by uh, quoting. There's a great website there called Collapse Board. Oh, this and, is great. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They've come, this is a compilation of Facebook postings that people have posted on Facebook. There was a question sent to many Facebook users. Why do you love or hate the Foo Fighters? The vast majority of people hated the Foo Fighters. <laughs> and, and, and here are some of the highlights of these quotes from Collapse. These, these are actual Facebook postings of people hating the fucking shit out of the Foo Fighters. <laughs> here we go. The first one, and I love this one. The Don Henley of grunge. <laughs> uh, uh, next. That's just piss week FM radio dribble. I agree with that. Um, the music, the music post debut album is utter shite. Grohl radiates chancer. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Oh, I love this one. Fucking positivity. <laughs> um, here's 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 some more. Here's some more. Oh, okay. Uh, too much bombastic, overbaked, reaching for the top 20 arena rockage pip with mostly crap lyrics. Nice guys, though. Uh, another one. Low, lowest common denominator rock. That's true. Fast food rock. He should put the guitar and microphone down and go back behind the drums where he belongs. Uh, I like this one. Stinking pile of wet manure, but no worse than Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> yeah that's wonderful uh, uh oh I, I like this one you could tell this is from the uk it's wanker shite for christ's sake 
Uh, yeah. uh, his lyrics are just awful and the songs all sound the same. Occasionally, when drunk, I sing along. I don't know how I know the words. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, yeah. The first record was okay. After that, there aren't really any songs, and the singing and lyrics generally aren't very good. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of this, man. Um, like, Grohl, as a songwriter, was at his best when he was patterning himself after another band. Once he developed his own songwriting voice, he fucking sucked. Anyway, hey, dude. Uh, so, you know, I, so, you know, one, tell me how you really feel. But uh, just a couple of uh, re- responses or uh, or uh, retorts uh, to that. I don't agree with you, and I don't see uh, anything beyond Alone and Easy Target really being intended uh, for uh, Cobain specifically. I think Dave Grohl had his own voice. Yes, he was trying to be good enough and, and rocking enough to get himself on uh, – Cobain's records and no, but, but, but Chris, 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 they were those songs were his vision of Nirvana, not yeah. Kurt Cobain's, not yours, not mine. His vision of Nirvana, I think, are represented by all those songs on the first Foo Fighters album, and they're good. It's a really good record, but let's face it, it's Nirvana with sweetening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess you can say that, but my, my point is that if if you if I was to put Kurt's voice in my head. Uh, the only one that's really tailor-made for him is Alone and Easy Target. And arguably, I guess I could hear him singing Big Me of all songs. But uh, so that's one point. The second point is, is we have to be fair to Grohl. Uh, there's a really powerful quote from a Rolling Stone profile that ran a couple years ago uh, on Grohl and the Foo Fighters, where he uh, was looking back and thinking back to the making of In Utero and uh, Kurt's demise. And he said, you know, that uh, I, I once uh, worked and lived and, uh, you know, had my professional life uh, squarely in the dark. Uh, I, I would rather live in the light. The light is so much better. Uh, I need the light. And so there's, there's something profound about that. The idea is, okay, fine. You know, so, you know, you can express yourself and, and have a voice and all of that. It doesn't necessarily need uh, to be brooding and depressed and angry and ironic oh, of course not. and cynical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you see, know. We just talked about Oasis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I know, you but know. yeah, well, but yeah, but that's kind of debauched or whatever, but, uh, but there is a place for quote unquote dad rock or nice guy rock. Uh, and you know, some of it is well done. Like I said, I agree with you. Most of the Foo Fighters stuff is pretty rote and pretty same sounding, but the best of stuff is great. Uh, you know, Grohl, you know, Grohl has the talent, uh, you know, my, the only thing that makes me shrug my shoulders is that, yeah, the uh, uh, the guy who at one time was uh, the greatest rock and roll drummer in the world, not named Neil Peart, uh, is now a front man with another guy who, by the way, just died on drums. Uh, that There's just something inherently just kind of icky about that. But like I said, you know, look, I admire Grohl. Like I said, those those three years, if you think about all of what he was facing, the courage that he needed that did, and the balls he needed to do that uh, was pretty uh, fantastic because it really goes beyond – because, look, okay, fine. He was the drummer in Nirvana. He was going to get meetings, but that was, no, yeah. that was no guarantee of anybody actually signing him, promoting him, and him becoming a superstar. Uh, right. He had to 
you know, run with that ball himself. Nothing was handed uh, to him in essence. And so, uh, yeah, more power to yeah. him. Okay, right. so so now we go from uh, who at the time was a young uh, and uh, uh, wanting to be an up-and-coming uh, rock star, and now we go to uh, a collection of oldies but goodies. It was a, Exactly. It, it was a pretty good year for some guys who had been around for a long time. Uh, yeah. Arturo, uh, lead us through the list. Yeah, I mean, the 1990s and the fourth golden age of rock continued to be a decade of artistic revival for classic rock artists from the 1960s and 70s and even the 80s. Here is a roll call of some oldies and goodies from the rocktastic year of 95. We're going to begin with the late, great David Bowie and his album Outside, uh, released in 95. Now, Bowie reached his commercial apotheosis in 1983 and 84 with his albums Let's Dance and Tonight and the slew of smash hit singles they produced. He spent the rest of the 80s and the first half of the 90s treading water by either dabbling in commercial hard rock with the band Tin Machine, immersing in indulgent theatrical productions such as the Glass Spiders tour, or maudlin romantic pop as he did in the early 90s. Apparently, however, Bowie eventually reconnected with his ambitious muse in a positive way, following a series of improvised recordings in the spring of 94 with various musicians and overseen by Brian Eno, the first time Bowie had collaborated with Eno since his classic Berlin trilogy records uh, in the late 70s, Bowie pieced together a concept album with a narrative inspired by David Lynch's cult TV series Twin Peaks. Taking place in the fictional town of Oxford Town, New Jersey, Nathan Adler is a detective who investigates the murder of a 14-year-old girl, only to find that the murder is just one in a series of murders involving a killer who maims his victims in elaborate ways that eventually see the crimes labeled as, quote, performance art crimes. Now, in the finished product, various tracks are sung from the perspectives of different characters in the story as are spoken word segues between songs. Musically, the album finds Bowie re-engaging with the edgy electronica and ambient music he and Eno were pioneers of so many years earlier. Heavy art rock, jazz, and even Nine Inch Nails-inspired industrial rock find themselves in the mix for Bowie's most ambitious, boldest, and most interesting album at the, at the time since 1980's Scary Monsters. Now, was it well-received at the time? Eh, the reception was mixed. The bad reviews were really bad, with some music critic named Taylor Parks saying, quote, Bowie's desperate desire to be considered highbrow has snuffed out any potential of accidental alchemy, and he promptly dismissed the record as, quote, sorry sack of shit, facile, confused, and immature, quite simply rubbish. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, Entertainment Weekly's David Brown said most of the music sounded like fodder and Select Magazine's Gareth Grundy found the music lacking in innovation and, quote, the daftest thing Bowie has ever done. On the positive side, both the UK's Melody Maker and NME praised the album as one of his most innovative works. Today Magazine praised Bowie's vocals as some of his best and Rolling Stone's David Frick, great writer, uh, loved the lyrics, but criticized the lyrical segues. Where do I stand? Well, 
Like most narrative-driven concept albums, the storyline gets convoluted from the middle point onward, and the spoken word segues annoyingly detract rather than engage the listener. But if you make a playlist consisting of just the musical pieces, of just the songs, you'll find an album of startling ingenuity and musical invention. Uh, It takes many of Bowie's musical tropes from the 1970s and updates them for the 90s, in invigorating ways, uh, proving the man really did find his mojo again. Uh, The Heart's Filthy Lesson is an impossibly groovy electro-rock workout with pianist Mike Garson reprising his avant-garde piano bit from Aladdin Sane. Uh, Hello, Space Boy uh, finds Bowie flirting with drum and bass and jungle forms of techno music being done at the time by the likes of The Prodigy and The Chemical Brothers and doing so marvelously. Um, not every, he was no dilettante, you know, um, and strangers when we meet is Bowie in his classic wistful romantic mode where he always manages to be, uh, emotional without being sentimental. Um, outside is a fascinating nugget in Bowie's catalog worth checking out. Chris, I know you're not a big fan. No, uh, weird ass record, uh, frankly, pretty silly. Uh, so the full name of this album is number one. Outside, right. and in parentheses, yeah. the Nathan Adler Diaries, a hypercycle. So it is the numeral one. Now, from what I've read and from what I understand, uh, Bowie and Eno and you know his usual collaborators, they did plan to have a number two and maybe a number three. Thank God that they never came out with a number two because, yeah, it would have been shit. Yeah. All right. So the next classic rock monster that uh, a classic rock legend that made great work in the 90s neil young continued his 90s hot streak with mirrorball in, in, in 95 now around this time neil young was on the record label reprise a subsidiary of warner brothers pearl jam was on epic a subsidiary of sony so for contractual reasons the names of the members of pearl jam could not appear on anything that wasn't sony related But that did not deter Uncle Neil from recruiting them to be his backing band on Mirrorball, his last great electric rock record, at least to this curmudgeon. Uh, Downtown is one of Neil's funkiest riffs and grooves like a motherfucker, despite the clunky, hippy-dippy dream lyrics. (laughs) Um, Big Green Country sails like a grunge jet rocket with a beautifully vintage Neil melodic chorus and blistering guitar solo in the middle and in the end. Uh, Peace and Love, uh, a co-write with Eddie Vedder, was hippy-dippy lyrics that actually work in the context of what I think is the most texturally dynamic and sonically richest song on the album. If you ever wanted to know what Uncle Neil would sound like with a badass world-class rock band behind him instead of the average musicianship of Crazy Horse, this is the album for you. Chris? Yeah, uh, Young definitely stepped up his game uh, backed by those guys. They kind of inspired him to do his... uh to basically do his his most hard hitting, like basically uh, like hard guitar rock, uh, you know, Ragged Glory is a pretty special record, but he hadn't done anything like that had this kind of uh, uh, what would you call it, like uh, swing or or backbeat or sort of um, yeah, you know, uh, agility force. Yeah, force, force, agility. Uh, best song on the record is "Act of Love." Uh, Downtown is a marvelous uh, single. A couple of things to note, and uh, we'll have to do further research on this, Arturo. But as far as I know, uh, Neil uh, was not allowed to credit 
Pearl Jam by name, but he did. And I remember this because I had the the record and I checked this on all music, uh, allmusic.com, which generally they always like reprint credits uh, straight from the source. Uh, Vetter, Ament, Gossard, McCready and Irons all got credits as contributors. Oh, but and I'll have we can we have to do more research, but this is my understanding. They got individual credits. It just couldn't be Neil Young's Mirrorball featuring Pearl Jam. You know, he, ah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, he, yeah. He, he, the, the, the words Pearl Jam could not be used. Yeah, he he could not trade off uh, the goodwill and uh, you know the the value that Pearl Jam, the name, the trademark, the act had accrued uh, for for uh, Epic. Uh, but yeah, no. And uh, one other thing to note, you know, I said earlier that uh, Young has uh, kind of dug in his heels with Spotify. Uh, however, uh, Young, uh, being a guy who's a man for the people. Uh, if you go on YouTube and to uh, Neil Young channel, that's the name of the, the, the channel on YouTube, all one word, Neil Young channel, uh, you can find uh, this album and a lot of his others. Uh, the language in the, uh, the uh, description field uh, will, uh, has a portion that reads, provided to Utah, uh, YouTube by Reprise. So uh, this is with permission uh, he basically just given away his music up there on YouTube. Uh, and so uh, God bless you, Uncle Neil. All right. So from one uh, classic rock maverick to another, now we got Motorhead and their 1995 album, Sacrifice. Now, like ACDC, Motorhead are a band that were accused all throughout their lifetime of making the same album over and over again. Now, that is true to a certain extent. But if you do a deep dive into the band's discography, as I have, you'll find certain records that stand out, whether it be by better songwriting or catchier riffs or whatnot. 1995 Sacrifice is one of those records, despite the internal problems they were having with their lead guitarist, Michael Wurzel Bernstein. Mm -hmm. um, indeed, it would be their last album as a quartet before reverting to their original trio format. Oddly enough, no singles were released from the album, as if the band were making a good old-fashioned Led Zeppelin-style album statement. But there are some kick-ass songs on this record. Order slash Fade to Black is one of the most pulverizing songs in the band's catalog, with a treacherous, lurching riff full of uh, and uh, deadly plotting rhythm before launching into the band's patented all-out balls-to-the-wall thrash attack. Uh, do you want your motorhead short and spicy? Check out the King Kong riff of Over Your Shoulder and the metal boogie woogie of Dogface Boy. Yeah, I love Dogface Boy. Yeah. Do you want your motorhead all political and shit? Check out the bludgeoning anti-war tirade War for War. Do you want your motorhead referencing their rock and roll heroes? Make Em Blind takes the classic Bo Diddley beat and bastardizes it in the form of ugly biker metal. That's a compliment, by the way. Yeah. Uh, according, according to the band's legendary frontman and bassist, Lenny Kilmeister, the late great Lemmy, uh, it was one of his favorite Motorhead albums. On the album's sleeve notes, he wrote, quote, This is a very good album. Put it in your system and your girlfriend's clothes will fall off. There you have it. <laughs> oh, keep it classy, Lemmy. Uh, so yeah, no, this, this, um, you know, at its best, you know, is, you know, kind of harkens back to the, the, the ace of spades kind of, you know, uh, peak, uh, era, uh, motorhead, but yeah, I mean like motorheads albums, 
for the most part, uh, the, the best ones you can kind of characterize as being like one long song. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of like this never ending, uh, this never ending torrent that I can basically describe. I, I'm laughing because I wrote this earlier today. Uh, you can basically describe their stuff as chugga lugga lugga boom 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 boom. You know, it's just this, this, just this never, you know, this never ending, you know, just kind of fast paced, intense, you know, gallop. And now we move to Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Our last album by an oldie but goodie. And I really do love this record. It's actually my favorite of his solo albums. Um, it's Morrissey and his album Southpaw Grammar from 1995, of course. Now, after a series of critically and commercially successful solo albums in the first half of the 1990s, the legendary former Smiths lead singer decided to get heavy. Um, released in August 1995, right in the middle of the Britpop mania we discussed earlier in this episode, it was as if Morrissey was trying to, on one hand, remind people how much of a trailbla- trailblazer for Britpop he was with his old band, the Smiths, and on the other hand, break new musical ground and confound expectations. And that he did with South Paul Grammar, a record that begins and ends with two dense, sprawling, shape-shifting, progressive rock epics. Uh, The first one, The Teachers Are Afraid of the Pupils, actually samples classical composer Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Uh, In in between those two monoliths, as if Morrissey delving into prog rock and King Crimson territory weren't enough, the album doesn't relent as it rocks with a fury Morrissey had never shown before and hasn't shown since. Seriously, there isn't a single ballad on the record. Um, The Boy Racer, one of the album's two singles, is a typically Morrissey-esque scathing attack of an egomaniacal and macho male figure and sounds like Morrissey injected with guitar steroids provided by Blur. Uh, uh, the operation proves even more befuddling for those expecting orthodox Morrissey as it actually begins with a drum solo before launching into a glam rock stomper. Uh, the other single off the album, uh, Dagenham Dave, is, a, is, a, is deceptively complex with its unusual chord progressions and shifting time signatures. Uh, Morrissey truly pulled out all the musical stops and what is perhaps... Uh, his most un-Morrissey-esque album ever. Um, Critical reception was mixed at the time, and it sold modestly, but time has proven kind to the record. Uh, Retrospective reviews of the album from music media outlets such as Stereo Gum, Drowned in Sound, and Uncut have hailed it as one of his essential recordings. I think it's by far his best album for the fact that it's by far his most dynamic and sonically it's his richest record. One that sees uh, the old Mazer venture into uh, musical territories one would never associate with him. Now, Chris, I know you hate Morrissey, but even you have to find something to like in South Paul Grammar, huh? Oh, I will confess, and uh, I have abdicated my duties as a curmudgeon, and I have avoided this record. Why? Well, I'll, I'll put it simply. Uh, Morrissey in interviews has uh, talked about uh, his uh, on and off commitment to celibacy. Well, I practice celibacy when it comes to Morrissey. I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I won't go there. All right. Moving on. Now we go back stateside. And this is probably going to be one of the more, the, the, our final and probably the most fun one. 
One Hit Wonderland of 1995. What a fucking year for one hit radio rock wonders. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it really was. I mean, you got to remember uh, the Telecommunications Act of 1996 uh, was passed by Congress in you know 1996, which effectively uh, was the beginning of the end uh, for uh, rock radio as we knew it. In fact, here we are a generation and a half later and rock radio is pretty much dead because of corporate consolidation and the idea that uh, these one-hit wonders could get a song on the radio that lasts for perpetuity uh, pretty much uh, faded away. But hey, you know, well, well, 95 and 96, like you see, like Arturo alluded to, uh, great uh, years. Now, uh, I'm extending it a little bit. It's not just one-hit wonders. It's two-hit wonders. Yeah, some of these bands are two-hit wonders. That is correct. Yeah, yeah and, and that is the thing. And so uh, we're going to go through an honor roll of this. Now, one caveat, say what you want about the streaming services and the evils they rain down upon recording artists uh, in this era. But, you know, stuff like iTunes and uh, Spotify and the others, they're re- really damn good tools for exercise like exercises like this one. You know, search, retrieve, store, capture. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, what a wonderful way to make a, a you know, a playlist uh, so, okay, so we're going to begin a, a, a an honor roll here. Uh, this will be fun, kind of lightning round stuff. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll name the songs, and I'll have a, a quick, maybe perhaps pithy comment to go with them. Okay, so we're going to run through this. You ready, Arturo? Yeah. Let's go. Okay, The Toadies, Possum Kingdom, a thick, crunchy riff and lurking spookiness that seems to last for about 15 minutes. Uh, wonderful car riding music. Uh, is, that the, is that the one that goes, do you want to die? Is yeah. that that one? Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. that one. All right. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Uh, Sunvolt, Drown. Uh, oh, great song. Ultimately, Jay Farrar wasn't the songwriter his Uncle Tupelo bandmate Jeff Tweedy became, but damn, he sure could come close as he does on this swaggering Americana rock gem. Next, The Rentals, Friends of P. Absolutely. Awesome, awesome little pop song and uh, undeniable proof that Matt Sharp had a whole lot to do with Weezer's signature sound and M.O. Yeah. OK. The presidents of the United States of America lump. Oh, yeah. Awesomely fun, silly ditty by an awesomely fun, silly band uh, who uh, the next year got a, a second radio hit uh, called Peaches. And then uh, it kind of fell off the radar pretty quickly. But for a while, their song Kitty, which is one of their better songs, that that had its moment in the sun, too. Okay, Edwin Collins, A Girl Like You, uh, blue-eyed electronic soul with a fuzzy guitar. uh, And, you know, it's still, uh, you still hear it uh, here and there. Uh, You know, he, uh, that guy pretty much was, uh, was a dominant figure. Uh, on pop radio and rock radio there for a good stretch of 1995. For the record, Edwin Collins was the lead singer and main guy from the indie Scottish, the Scottish indie band Orange Juice. Uh, uh, they had two great albums, both in 1982. Um, that, that it, it's, it, it was, they came from indie rock, but they were so not punk. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was kind of like a kitschy, Kind of looking back to the seventies a bit, you know, kind of like a an indie punk take on Steely Dan is kind of like what Orange Juice were with Rip It Up in '82, and also You Can't Hide Your Love Forever, which I love. Yeah, and and some of that obviously creeps into a girl like you. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's it's got a pristine uh, shimmer uh, to it for sure. Okay, Hum Stars, 
Uh, Fantastic late, song. Yes. Late period grunge at its finest. Uh, a member of Hum just died this year, uh, RIP. So uh, Stars has been getting a renewed play. Uh, Joan Osborne's One of Us. Ugh. A gorgeous, hopeful ballad that elicits spiritual reactions from even the uh, even the atheists. Now, what if God was one of us? Oh, I mean, if God if God was one of us, he'd turn off the radio. No, I I, I actually <laughs> really really love that song. Uh, you know, uh, strange but true, written by one of the guys from the Hooters. Um, <laughs> so uh, here's here's a fun story uh, for everyone. So our, our mutual friend uh, Ryan. Uh, once randomly busted out during a social gathering with what if Chris was one of us, <laughs> which if you knew me back then was probably a fair question. Uh, okay. Moving on. Uh, okay. Sponge Molly, mm. 16 candles, mm. cool yeah. riff driving a bad song. If, if the lead singer could scream in pain instead of sing earnestly, this would be new metal. White Zombie, more human than human. Oh, that's a good song. Yeah. Uh, Rob's gig before directing all those horror movies. Uh, he was much better at creating futuristic industrial rock like this awesome piece of grinding gold. The Boo Radleys, Wake Up Boo. Great song. Inspiring Beach Boys-inspired acapella opener, followed by... um. Sky inflected pop. Hmm. The mighty mighty Boston's did this kind of thing better a couple years later with the impression that I get. Matthew Sweet, sick of myself. Oh, love that. Well, that's like that was his second big hit. Yes, uh, after Girlfriend. Uh, I like this song better. This is great, pretty psychedelic bash out rock. Uh, maybe Girlfriend from a couple years ago was more highly regarded, uh, but again, this song was better. Uh, as an aside. Uh, Sweet was a member of a kitschy celebrity band uh, with Susanna Hoffs and Mike Myers that spawned Austin Powers. And that implicitly shows in songs that he used to do like this. Uh, yeah, poor, poor, and poor Matthew Sweet now is suffering from obesity. Uh, he, he, he has to perform his shows sitting down on his chair because he can't stand up. Yikes. It's really bad. It's mm. sad. No, I'm sorry to hear that, man. Wow. Okay. Uh, Wax, California. Uh, near perfect three minute pop punk song, uh, more probably most famous for its music video, which is one of the greatest ever made. Uh, you'll probably yeah. remember this, Arturo. Basically, the whole video is a guy who appears to be engulfed in flames jogging in slow motion down a city street, uh, mm. really absorbing stuff. Uh, okay, so now we're, we're going to have a portion of this list that I call the uh, the un the unenthusiastic acknowledgement section. Uh, <laughs> to wit, Dishwala, counting blue cars. Tell me your thoughts on God. Oh, I hate that song. Ugh. Sensitive male <laughs> vocals on loan from Central Casting. Gollum, yeah. but hey, I acknowledge it was all over the place. Filter, hey man, nice shot. That's hey, all right. That's all right. Hey man, bad song. But hey, <laughs> I acknowledge it was all over the place. Hey, hey, man, hey, man, not a bad Nine Inch Nails ripoff. Right. <laughs> hey, man. Okay, there's that. Better than Ezra. Good. A catchy pop song I never much cared for, but hey, yeah. I acknowledge it was all over the place. Right. And finally, Deep Blue Something, Breakfast at Tiffany's. God. And I said, what about turning this shit off? But hey, <laughs> I acknowledge it was all over the place. 
Now, yeah. let us return to better terrain. Tripping Daisy, I Got a Girl. Good song. Weird, satirical, funny, and yep, trippy. Jill Sobiel, I Kissed a Girl. Mm. Tripping Daisy Got the Girl. Jill Sobiel uh, Kissed Her. Charming pop ode to females loving on females. And no, this is not an original version of Katy Perry's much more famous hit of the same name. Silver Chair, Tomorrow. As phony grunge goes, this wasn't bad. Too bad the rest of Silver Chair's stuff was shit. Oh, God, it wasn't ever shit. And finally, Everclear, Santa Monica. Couldn't avoid it, but loved it. Arn Alexakis was a sorely underrated punk rock songwriter. Uh, the band scored a second uh, monumental hit three years later, the incredibly raw and incredibly moving Father of Mine. And there ends our honor roll. Arturo, did I miss anything or do you have anything to add? No, man. <laughs> That's pretty much a playlist for summer of 1995 right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> summer, summer and fall, uh, pretty much. Yeah, there's a... a there's an article, coincidentally, out there, folks, that uh, Spin ran a few uh, years ago. Uh, basically, I think it's called the 1990. I think it's like the 95 best alternative songs yeah. of uh, of 1995. 1995. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's cheesy, but you know, listicle stuff. But actually, it is a good trip down memory lane. Lots of good songs uh, listed on there. Um, so there you go. So we end uh, this with an ode to uh, long lost rock radio. So we started with the Brits, we went through grunge, and then we hit the old men, and finally, yo, yo, radio, radio, radio. <laughs> and with that, we have now uh, completed our uh, revisitation of 1995. Oh, what a splendid one it was. Just remember, folks, uh, you know, join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. If you didn't like anything you hear, you heard here, or uh, or even if even if uh, you didn't like it, or you liked it, or whatever, curmudgeonrock at gmail uh, .com. And uh, pretty soon, project I'm working on is to assemble playlists to correspond with every one of these uh, episodes of the fourth golden age of rock that uh, I'll post to Spotify and make that available uh, at places to be determined here in the near future. So yeah, 1996, next up in this series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock. The end of the grunge road was near. Bravo STP and poor, poor, pitiful screaming trees. That window was indeed closing, but others were indeed opening mightily. Remember the arrival of Tool and Slater Kinney as true forces? Well, we sure do. Tune in in two weeks. Until then, join us on Facebook, or shoot us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Word to your mother. <laughs>